Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Happy Sunday night, Monday morning. I'm Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. On the other end of the line, as he is every Sunday, is Weldon Rodenberg, former Ole Miss recruiting specialist. What a uh, what a day of sports, what a day of football, and what a game between Ole Miss and Arkansas, uh, the latest chapter in this really just bizarre, I guess, I mean, you call it a rivalry, whatever. They're not like traditional rivals, I don't guess. SEC matchup that's just really been a bizarre series for seven, eight years now, I guess, kind of starting with the whole Hunter Henry thing in 14 or 15, I guess that was. Um, just another awesome chapter. Uh, Ole Miss finally comes out on the right side of one. Uh, obviously, we'll get to the ending, Matt Corral's play, a lot of different stuff. This one you could dissect for hours upon hours if you wanted to. We'll try to hit as much as we can. But before we get to that, I want to remind you the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. So the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox major interval and advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the industry. You need to check these guys out. You guys know the Joe with Skybox. I actually don't have the numbers. Yet from this past weekend, Skybox is coming off a nine and one NFL week, seven and oh, excuse me, nine and oh, seven and one week one. They're crushing the NFL, been hitting some NASCAR winners as well. They're going to have a picks package that fits your price range. So check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. You can do month long passes, week long, you can do a daily pass. I'd recommend doing the full season all sports package. It's going to pay for itself and then some, but you know, if you're looking for something more sports specific, you can try it for a month, a year. You can go month long all sports. They're going to have something that's going to fit your price range. And I promise you, it's going to pay off in the end. You don't want to really be paying the man on Sunday night. You know, we all got the scaries. Text you Sunday night, Monday morning. You want to be texting the man asking where your cash is coming from and when you're squaring up on that after you take him for all he's worth. Skybox is the most consistent way to do that. Plus, trust me, don't go on your own info. Don't go on blind. This is a proven method that is withstand the, it's proven to withstand the test of time. I can't talk today and will consistently lead you to profit. And I promise you, going off your own dumb brain is not going to work. Check them out. Skyboxsportspicks.com. Went five and two in the NFL with a 12-unit NASCAR weekend. I just lied and said I didn't know the stats. I just got a stats update in the middle of this ad read. So how about that? Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Absolutely slaying the NFL in particular and NASCAR right now. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Y'all know the drill. Go see Greg. Oxford is so lucky to have LB's, the best butcher shop in the world. If you're a subscriber to the Repute Rights newsletter, that's repeatrights.substack.com, you get an email or newsletter email for me three to five times a week and discounted meats. I'll let you decide which one's better. Currently the deal is if you are a subscriber and just type in your email, rippywrites.substack.com, you get a 16 ounce prime strip for 15 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. That's a hell of a way to kickstart your weekend. Throw it out on the grill, get the football games going, makes for one hell of a Saturday night, but you need to go check out Greg LB's university Avenue across from Kroger it's don't go to Kroger. Don't go to Walmart. Greg wants to make sure you have a good grilling experience. And LB's is absolutely the superior place to do it. Lane train special, Keith Carter special, bacon wrap fillets, fresh seafood, all kinds of delicious sausages. I'm telling you, you're going to walk in there and be amazed. Check him out. You don't want to go anywhere else. Oxford is so lucky to have LB's. So give him a call. Check him out. LB's University Avenue. What's up, man? 
Oh, not too much. Uh, yeah, I assume this was probably going to be a long one, <laughs> talking about that game, all the other stuff that happened on Saturday. And, of course, you know, we probably won't get too much NFL, but the noon slate kind of just led off where college football started yesterday with some just ridiculous games. So It really it, was nuts. Wild weekend. Yeah. The, uh, the, the witching hour in the early games on Red Zone the last couple of weeks <laughs> has been uh, just top-notch TV. Um, I was actually watching the ones last week with MC, and I think that was the first one that was, like, good in the early window where it was, like, you know, you think, like, Scott Hansen's about to have, like, an aneurysm or a heart attack. Like, you're not really sure. You have that 10-minute stretch where you just can't get to all the games at once. Uh, it makes for pretty – and she was like, all this is happening one time, and I was like, welcome to seven hours of commercial-free football. That's kind of how this, this, this works. It was good stuff. So we'll get into some yeah. of that as well. <laughs> Speaking of not being able to keep up and not knowing where to start, I would have no idea where to start with this one. We could probably go just about anywhere. I guess I'll kind of start with a, a macro thought about this one. Uh, Ole Miss, of course, wins 52-51, 670 yards of offense allowed. I think Ole Miss had around that total as well, like 1,200, yards of offense in this game. Um, I'll tell you the first surprising aspect of this game to me, and maybe I shouldn't have been surprised by it, and I just wasn't paying close enough attention. Um, Ole Miss ran the ball a lot, and they made a concerted effort to wear Arkansas down. Corral only finishes with 14 of 21. He was really good, really efficient when he threw it. Once again, very good running the football. Just general macro kind of game plan-wise from an offensive perspective, did that surprise you, or did you think that's kind of what they were going to try to do? That did not surprise me at all, and actually – for the first time in a long time, I was able to just sit on my couch and watch the game, have the announcers and everything, which was which was great. Uh, I think Jeff Levy saw where this game was going, especially in the second half. Uh, I saw a lot of people complaining about them running the ball, but the fact was you had to run the ball. The way they were playing defense, they were giving you the numbers. Plus, if you go out there and you just go three and out throwing the ball or – you know, six and out, your defense is going to be on the field the entire game. You have to slow the game down, kind of wear them down a little bit, kind of catch them sleeping a little bit. You just Levy knew that that's what they were going to have to do in this game. They stuck with it early. They stuck with it late. It was definitely in the game plan, and it was good to see them just trust their backs, trust the offensive line who played much better and just stick with the game plan and what they needed to do to win. Yeah, and it's a it's a testament to a couple of different things. And I had a, a couple of notes written down based off of this. So the dot, drop eight deal from last year, six interceptions, talked about ad nauseum. We discussed it on our Thursday night, Friday, whatever, preview. And, of course, they mixed it up more defensively, which just watching the evening a little bit of Arkansas this year, you could tell they're a little bit more aggressive blitzing linebackers. And I think them being a little better on the defensive line has kind of allowed them to be a little more creative in some of what they do. So I didn't figure it would be the drop eight, try to twist Matt Corral's brain again um, type of thing. But at the same time, like I think it's probably a testament to Ole Miss being patient because I think even though it wasn't strictly drop eight, you mentioned the way they were playing them defensively kind of some seem like in the beginning, some softer coverages, basically just trying not to get kind of killed on the big play, which ironically they did in the two biggest moments of the game, <laughs> but it seemed like they were kind of trying to goad him into making a poor decision again by not having the whole score from far thing. They kind of made Ole Miss move it down the field. Didn't always work, but I thought that was kind of a testament both to Levy and to Corral where they kind of were testing his patience, testing his decision-making and he passed, and it didn't seem like Levy really 
I guess, took the bait for the lack of a better phrase either. He wasn't going to do it. I mean, they, as I mentioned many of times, this game has been on their minds for a while. I mean, it was on their minds the entire year last year, even after the game. They were not going to get baited and fooled. Corral was not going to do what he did last year. And they were just going to stick with what they knew was going to be successful for them in this game. And that was the goal. That was the game playing clearly with the amount they ran the ball. Um, even on, like, on first and second down, I mean, I just can't remember many times they didn't run the ball. They knew exactly what the numbers were. They trusted their team, and that's just what they did. And it was very, very successful. I mean, there's a lot to take away from this game, but Ole Miss put 52 points on a really good defense. And there's some positives you can take from that, and I'm sure we'll get to the negatives later. For sure. And another thing to add on top of that, they didn't get discouraged by it either because there were some moments, particularly early in the game, it didn't seem like, again, I am no kind of schematic football savant. I feel like I have to preface everything I say when I'm about to like get into more like a technical side of things before I say it. But it didn't seem like Ole Miss was having a ton of success, particularly in shorter yarded situation, just kind of running off the two guards in the center's butt. Like those very much interior kind of straightforward runs. They didn't have a ton of success with that. And Arkansas stopped them for some neutral negative kind of in that range, one to two yard to two to three yard loss type of plays early. And Ole Miss didn't really get discouraged by it. They stuck with it and they continued to try to run the football. And they did so with some pretty decent success. And we talked about the lack of creativity in the running game last week, you know, like a lot less misdirection. And maybe some of that was kind of just getting flustered a little bit by the way Alabama was crushing Ole Miss on the other side of the line of scrimmage. And Arkansas has a pretty good defensive line. Those three transfers are really good. And Ole Miss kind of stuck with it. And I thought there was a lot more creativity. They even ran like Jacor Pearson a couple of times off the edge. It seemed like they're a little more creative with how they use Snoop. And you saw the pianist get in there and get some action as well. It seemed like there was a lot more variety in how they ran the ball. And I think that was important because I think Pittman said this when they talked to him on the radio at halftime, like Arkansas's radio that he was like, we're fine for the most part, but we just keep getting whipped on the edge. And that seemed to be where Ole Miss kind of made its hay is getting outside. Yeah, they, they ran that little orbit motion a few a few times. That's when they get the slot receiver. He kind of does a little reverse around the running back and the quarterback, or he takes the, uh, you know, the zone uh, sweep there. And it was a nice wrinkle that I think, you know, they, they do this every week. You put in different kinds of plays, and they clearly had that one ready for uh, – not red zone, but getting towards the red zone, kind of mix it up instead of running your typical inside zone or whatnot. But they uh, they had some wrinkles. They had some some different shot plays you haven't seen. And, yeah, I mean, Arkansas definitely was better against the run when they knew it was coming, kind of the right. short yardage. Ole Miss struggled again. And that's uh, – you got to fix that at some point. But – all in all, they kept with it the entire game and kind of warmed down towards the end. That's what I was going to ask you next. So how much of that is fixable or is that just become kind of who you are? And I don't, that sounds like a, like sliding a negative and just kind of, I guess, kind of getting to, okay, they suck here and there's not going to get any better. I don't even really mean it in that simplistic sense, but they were down a guard in Caleb Warren. You know, I'm not, near smart enough to like know how well or how poorly Orlando Mon is actually playing, but there clearly has been some times this year where they tried to run away from him a little bit. And there's been some times where he clearly he hasn't played well and that's had some effect. So if you're not as good on the interior and you're down a guy, like 
how much of that is fixable and how much of it is just, okay, we're not great in these short yardage things. Cause Lane said it in his press conference. He's like, have you seen what happens to us on fourth and one, particularly when we can't go tempo? Like to me, that was spoken like a man of we're not very good here. So we're trying to, I guess, scheme around it. How much of that do you think you could fix? And how much of it is just kind of, all right, we are who we are. This is just not something we're good at. There, it kind of goes both ways, I guess. Um, it's it's fixable from like a play calling standpoint. Maybe you kind of mix up your short yardage. Maybe sometimes, you know, when they bring that slot receiver across the line of scrimmage, what they do a lot as kind of, you know, just for show, uh, sometimes you just give it to them. Give, some, give the team something else to see on film where you know that they're not just going to fake it and then run that inside zone on fourth and one like they did on that fourth down play. They got stopped on uh, their own side of the field. Uh, from just a personnel standpoint, the guys are who they are. Either they can get pushed or they can't. So that that is not fixable uh, to an extent. I guess you can hear a play here or there. You can play a little bit better. But uh, I think they just kind of mixed up a little bit. I think still the third down play calling is getting abnormally conservative. They're, they're getting too excited or too uh, – looking forward to fourth down a little bit too much. I think that's killing them. And they've got to realize at this point, fourth and one, it's not really our strength. We're honestly a better fourth and four team than we are a fourth and one team. So fixing up the play callings on fourth downs, fixing the play callings on third downs can lead to a better success rate in these short yardage plays. That makes sense. I'm glad you went there. Of all the things we discussed last week, like the fourth down decision-making and all that stemming from Alabama, one of the things that, just in two hours of podcasting, I kind of omitted, and I think we may have gotten to some of this on Thursday night, was how badly they'd been on third down. How Like they were 72nd entering the Alabama game in the country on third down conversion percentage. It dipped below 39% to right at 38%. I think they were 77th entering this game. I think I just happened to see that flash across the broadcast watching the game again earlier today. You mentioned it being abnormally conservative and looking forward to fourth down. Why would you like? I, I, help me understand? Why would you want to look forward to fourth down? Wouldn't you rather just convert that sucker on third down? Look, I get if it's four, third and nine or whatever, and you have like a play you feel like Mike could kind of get the nine yards, but like you know, if we get seven, it's fine, and you feel good about it. It probably opens up the playbook more. But at a certain point, isn't the best way to not turn it over on downs just convert that sucker on third down? What is kind of the thinking there, and what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I, it's really more about you can open up your playbook on a third and six, third and seven compared to what teams would be expecting because, you know, teams will probably throw in their dime package, bring some edge rushers in if they can substitute. If they can't, you know, you're kind of prepared for a pass play if it's third and seven, third and eight. So now you can kind of run the ball if you, you see a look you like or you can throw it still. And that's probably why – they haven't had the success on third down. It's not, you know, you don't want to not get it on third down. You're not calling plays to not get the first down, sure. but you're just keeping the the playbook open enough to where you can kind of confuse some teams and then still know that if the right numbers are there, you're going to go for a fourth down anyway. It's just a product of the way they decided to play this game, honestly. And that's what they're going to do. They're not going to change it. You saw again today, they're not going to change what they do with analytics. They're probably not going to change what they do scheme-wise on defense. It's really got to the point where if you're watching it, you just have to accept it. And you can't complain about it because this is your team. 
They're four and one. This is just how they're going to do everything. So it, I don't want to be rude, but you just kind of got to get over it. This is what it's going to be like. So they just have to be more successful in some of it. No, I think you're exactly right. I wrote the same thing um, on like on the Monday newsletter or whatever it was after the album. I was like, look, this is not changing. Like if you don't like it, get over it or get used to it. Like it, it, it's not changing. So it is what it is. And then Ole Miss goes four or five on fourth down in this game. They had the one where I thought at the time when they didn't get that fourth and one on their own 30 or whatever, that was when Ole Miss was up 24 to 21. They had just allowed a touchdown. They were up 10. They had just allowed a touchdown. And then they don't get that. That was the first time or first point in the game where I was like, oh, boy, they might actually like like they might lose this. This might get away from them here and credit to the defense. I know they weren't good, but they did get a stop there. So that one didn't work out. All the other ones did. They converted some big ones. But I'm glad we kind of got to that because it does seem that they just like they don't value third down at all. And I don't mean that to like, like I don't mean to sound like they should. They certainly know about this a lot more about this than I do. But it's very clear they don't value converting third down near as much as maybe some casual football fans are used to seeing they kind of just view it as a yardage to like you mentioned it opens up the playbook if you can get it great if not let's just kind of look ahead and have a good fourth down play call you know you can agree disagree with it it's not changing and the the other aspect of that I kind of wanted to get to or I guess shifting back more towards the uh the running game was another thing was it clear they're going to run corral that's that seems to be just kind of a thing. He has 15 carries for 94 yards and two more touchdowns in this game. You know, I think Kiffin said after Austin P or Tulane, one of the two, it's probably Tulane because that was the game that Corral had a bajillion rushing touchdowns. He was like, we don't want to run him that much, but some of that is just what the defense is giving them. And that's the read and he's making the correct read. Why do you think we're seeing this? Because we didn't see this at all last year. And Clearly, it's probably not something they're thrilled about. I mean, how many times did you see, you know, him to go to slide, which good for him, but Arkansas really just kind of take the shot at him, you know, as he's sliding. You don't want that a ton, but why do you think this is happening? Yeah, I'm not sure you're going to see it the rest of the season as much as you saw against Arkansas. But when you can have the quarterback run, it makes it 11 v. 11. And when they're dropping eight like that, it just opens up more for you to do an offense. You can get an extra blocker from the running back. I mean, they ran a, a bunch of quarterback uh, draws and quarterback counters that were really successful plays. And I think it's just another another ability for them to be successful in offense, just being able to run corral. And he may not be the speedster that uh, Plumley was as a runner, but he's honestly – he might be a better runner, just he's more uh, – he just got better intangibles as a runner. He sees the things better and he's, he's a weapon at that position and you got to eventually use it if you have it. And it definitely worked in the game plan they had for Arkansas, but I wouldn't say that you're going to see that 15 carries, 10 carries, uh, that kind of number going forward. Cause they just might not need it depending on what the defense is doing. Yeah, he is a weapon and he has great vision. There were a couple drives, particularly early in the second half where Ole Miss had, kind of stalled a little bit offensively. The running game wasn't going as well. And one of them was a design run, if I'm not mistaken. The other one was a scramble where he converted a couple of pretty key third downs to where if that's a negative play, I don't – again, I'm not privy to this uh, mysterious book we talked about, but it would seem fairly obvious Ole Miss would have punted the football in both of those situations in their own territory. Yeah. He really – I mean, talk about him playing well and being patient, and we'll get to kind of the way he threw the ball in a second. But not only is he a weapon – he's kind of saving Ole Miss's ass on a number of occasions scrambling. And I think that probably speaks to what you're talking about is, you know, 
he may not be as quick and shifty as Plumlee, but he has great vision and he has a knack for getting to a certain yardage or a certain spot very quickly. He seems very deliberate with kind of how he runs the football. So I think he's a weapon, but he's also, I mean, how many times have you thought in the last two weeks that that's extended a drive and saved a drive? Uh, quite a lot. He, he's just really, he's efficient and he's got great instincts as a runner. I mean, he sees the cuts before they happen like a running back would. Uh, whereas Plumlee is just kind of like, you know, straight line ripping through teams uh, if he's got a hole. But if he doesn't have a hole, he's not going anywhere. Um, oh, I cannot believe the Chargers. We'll talk about this. The Chargers just went down. Uh, that looked like a little – I was looking at the same thing, a little bad beat one yard line. So this is a – this Brandon Staley guy, I don't know if anybody listening to this podcast is watching this game right now. Talk about a guy who trusts – analytics this guy's unbelievable he he's gone for it on fourth and eight fourth and seven most teams would have just running in the end zone right there and giving the browns the ability to just go score but no time that's just awesome sorry that's very off topic but that's that's the kind of stuff you love to see just when teams know what to do whereas some teams just don't know what to do i mean there's honestly a case scenario going back to old miss where braylon sanders a weird case scenario where he may uh, go down the one yard line. Oh, they just ru- they pushed him in. <laughs> so hold on, I know this is completely off topic. It doesn't matter because you looked that up and I was looking at the same thing. So you talk about him doing analytics. I agree. So basically, what we're talking about here is as we're doing some live podcasting. It's forty two forty one Browns. The Chargers have it in the red zone, and a field goal wins the game. The Browns don't have any timeout, so they had a run for a first down inside the five where Eckler, I believe it was, or whoever the running back was, went down on purpose. But the next play, why not just kneel it? Why in the world did they just run a run play? Like, I get we just talked up the guy, but why would they not just kneel it? Yeah, I I don't know. I I don't know why they didn't just kneel it. I don't know why Eckler didn't go down. I guess they were at the point where, like, okay, we can get at least a few more seconds off here. And, of course, they get the two-point conversion there. Just awesome stuff. But, uh, okay, sorry. Bad live podcasting there, but it's – it's some good football stuff for sure. Just that's just you don't see that every day from teams, honestly. Someone you else either never see it. someone else though listening to this show either had Cleveland or LA and is probably glad we talked about this because they're probably incredibly pissed or feel like everything that just happened evened out by the Browns throwing the running back in the end zone on purpose. My God, Vegas really screws with people's brains. But speaking of uh, speaking of running the football. And analytics, that was another like another thing coming into this game was Jerry Ely out with the concussion protocol, right? I don't think Kiffin ever officially said that, but it seems fairly obvious. It was reported at multiple places. It forced them to give Snoop Connor and I say forced them to give Henry Paris more touches. I don't really think that was an issue with Paris. He was used a lot, no. but you got the Snoop Connor game. And honestly, like I, it's always weird and subjective to say. I don't think Ole Miss is a better football team without Jerry on Ely. I think he's, you know, a good running back. He needs the doubt. But, like, all voids are not created equal. Like, I would argue Ole Miss being without Jonathan Mingo might actually be a slightly bigger void to this offense than without being Jerry on Ely. How crazy of a take is that? I just think, you know, with the depth and the versatility they have, particularly if Corral is going to be this kind of weapon in the running game, Honestly, I just kind of thought it made them do something they were resistant to do, and they might be better for it because this whole, like, Snoop Connor second-half short-yarded situation thinks they were forced out of it, and they ran the ball better because of it. Yeah, I, I don't think it's that hot of a take that this team is totally fine without Ely. I mean, you don't want to not have him, but I think that 
losing Mingo to an extent could have – that's a take I can agree with. Um, Snoop had a hell of a game, but P- Parrish had a hell of a game too. I oh, mean, some, yeah, to me that's expected so at this point. Yeah, he, uh, he's the most complete back on the team. Some of those carries where, like, it looks like it's going to be one yard and he makes that one cut, it's like six yards. It's just something that no one else on that team can do. And Snoop finished those runs, and those were huge. But those were schemed up offensive line plays. I mean, I think Parrish scores on those, some of those touchdowns, too. I mean, he was he was gone from the second he went through the hole. I mean, he, there was no one even near him. And that's good vision on him for hitting the hole like he does. And he had a great game as well. That running game, like I, like we said before, they stuck with it. They were diverse with it. And they did not let Arkansas bait them into just throwing the ball the entire game. And both those guys had a hell of a game. Bullet got in there a little bit and got a few things. Uh, he's still young. I think he's just behind three really good running backs. But – yeah, I, they were great, and I think missing Mingo is starting to kind of show up a little bit. But if they can run the ball like they did today, and I don't think they're going to see a defensive line as good as Arkansas or Bama until maybe A&M later in the year, they're going to be okay. And this offense is going to keep rolling, even though they've got a pretty tough test next week. Yeah, I, I think you're dead on with that in particular. And I, I think you're exactly right. I. So I don't want to get half an hour or 45 minutes in this podcast with probably out discussing the most consequential play of the game um, as the, the very detailed podcast script that I spend hours working on before I send you. Uh, I'm not the biggest expert on how show notes should go, but we should probably get to that one beforehand. So let's get to the end of the game and then backtrack a little bit after that, because I find the decision making fascinating because Neil and I and Chase talked about this on the post game show for a bit where I wasn't even trying to do this but Neil was very like I guess pro them going for two and I wasn't anti going for two but I gave my reasoning why I was a little bit surprised by it with the way the game seemed to be flowing and Neil was kind of like oh now you're kind of talking me out of it like I can see how this makes sense and I think that's probably the classic hindsight is 2020 there's no wrong decision there particularly with the way that game was going but Arkansas takes it down the field um, we can roast the clock operator in a minute, but let's just get, yeah. well, let's get, that. just go down to the last drive because honestly, with as bad as the Ole Miss defense had played, I didn't think there was any way in the world Arkansas was going 70 plus yards down the field in a minute with the way those drives had gone. I don't remember how many timeouts they had. I don't think it was the full allotment. I should probably have written that down, but I, I, I didn't think there was any way in hell that that was going to happen. And then it does. Let's start with the two-point conversion, and then we can get to whoever runs the clock and why they should be put in hiding for their own safety. But what did you think of the decision to go for two? And I'll kind of get to something in a second because Kiffin actually got asked about what he would have done. But just your thoughts on their decision to go for two with the way that game was going. I think it was the correct decision. I was all in on that decision. I The play calling was – the play call for the on the two-point is can be discussed – because I just cannot believe they didn't run the ball. I just, can't either. I cannot believe they didn't run the ball. I know what they were trying to do. They, they hit us on that play earlier in the game where they – it was the sprint out with the tight end kind of just sitting there and they threw a touchdown. That's what they were going for. But Ole Miss was ready for it. Kudos to that – the defense for at least one thing. Um, I, it was just the right time-play situation. The way the game was going, you just – you don't know what's going to happen in overtime, despite, you know, 
the Ole Miss fans, that's not the most intimidating place to play in the world. Uh, you just got to end the game there. You, you got to either be like, trust your team, trust your playmakers. K.J. Jefferson was ridiculous the entire game. He was impossible to stop, which is credit to him. I was dogging him a little bit. Not really dogging, but I, I was not overly impressed with his beginning of the season. But yesterday he was phenomenal. And you just got to give it in his hands and let him make a play. And they didn't make it. Uh, and that's unfortunate for them, I guess. But I think it was the right call. I, I think I, like, I could not be any more neutral. I, I think I guess at the end of the day, I would probably lean with you where it's the right call. But it's not like – I say neutral in the sense that, like, I'm not, like, pro or anti either way. If they had kicked and gone to overtime – I would have uh, I would have been like, okay, no, this absolutely makes sense. They're kind of playing a little bit of the long game here. They kind of saw where this game was headed in the second half. But then when he, you know, credit to Sam Pittman, man, for a guy, I hate to keep doing the Matt Luke comparisons, but, you know, Matt Luke punted or, or kicked a field goal to go for overtime on fourth and two in plusted territory against Vanderbilt in 2018 with no bowl game on the line. Like they still had a bowl ban. And uh, even when – the Elijah Moore dog pee thing happened. Like he was going to go for one either way without that penalty. Like you showed on the sideline, Sam Pittman, as soon as they scored that touchdown, stuck two, two fingers up and that was it. So credit to him for being decisive, because I think sometimes coaches can kind of get in their own head in that sense, particularly if you're not kind of, particularly if your job security is not great. And I'm not saying his job security is not great. That's actually probably totally the opposite with the way he is at this point in his career. I was just more, I guess, impressed with the guy like that who was kind of not given much of a shot and he got the job to just immediately be like, yeah, hell yeah, we're getting out of here and we're going to win this thing right now. But again, kind of going back to the other side of the argument, I didn't hate them going for two, but if they had not gone for two, I wouldn't have, uh, I wouldn't have hated it either because I guess what I'm trying to get at is, one, the way Ole Miss was playing in the second half, Corral threw an unbelievable ball to Braylon Sanders, the one where it carried like 67 yards or whatever the hell it was. And then the hitch move, the double move or whatever to get the four to score, where they almost scored too fast to go up 52, 45, the end was just kind of a busted play and a, not a busted play, but a busted assignment. They kind of got him there and a hell of a throw to whereas Ole Miss was not really methodically moving the football down the field very well on Arkansas and Kiffin talked about this in his post-game presser. You know, he's like, have you seen what happens when we get in short yardage situations and short and down by the goal line and can't go tempo? We're not as good of an offense. Well, you can't really go tempo the way college overtime is set up, right? You get the ball at each 25. There's really not much getting beat over the top. I just thought Arkansas would have fared much better with the way they were playing offensively than Ole Miss in overtime. If it had gone to overtime, I was actually kind of thinking, you know, Ole Miss is probably losing this game. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, but that doesn't really change my decision making right, exactly. on that ball. If that I'm the coach, you can't you can't look at it and be like, well, I kind of like our, you know, I like our odds in overtime. You know, as he's as they're scoring, you know, to tie the game, it's like, well, maybe we'll think of a few plays in overtime. You know, we our quarterback's not as good as the other team's quarterback. We're on the road. Uh, they're running the ball down our throats, you know, now old Arkansas is running the ball down Ole Miss's throats as right. well. So it just, it's just so much more of a variance than one play. Here it is. Here we go. And you could tell that during the timeout before the last uh, play of the game, which shouldn't have been a play, but is what it is that they already knew what they were doing. There, there was no doubt, no, no questioning. And you got to have some, 
some credit to Sam Pittman for just having that thought process and just sticking with his gut, trusting his staff and being like, I'm doing this and this is how it's going to be. Because there's a lot on the line for both teams in this game. A ton with the way the West is shaping up. Yeah, I mean, obviously they wouldn't foresee the Bama game, but that happened. But just in terms of a New York Six Bowl, in terms of a crazy-ass small possibility of going to the playoffs, this game was ginormous. And Pittman still was, we just have to go for two. We have to get out of here, win or lose. Um, And I think it was the right call. It just didn't work out for him. Is it, it's the decisiveness and the clarity to know from the start, because honestly, if he calls Tom out and they send the kicker out and Arkansas ends up winning the game in overtime, I think I might've actually been less impressed with him, even though I just kind of made the case to go for it. Like the, if he had changed his mind, like to me, that would have been less impressive. I, I don't know. That guy just seems kind of cool as a cucumber. Like he looks, this sounds dumb, but sometimes I think you can tell like how guys might fare as head coaches in terms of like kind of their mannerisms on the sidelines at times. I'm trying to think of a good non-Ole Miss example because I could think of a couple Ole Miss examples, uh, particularly Houston Nutt at the end. That looked like a man that had just really checked out and had no idea what was going on and no control of his program. And it's a small thing, but he's, I don't know, I'm impressed by Sam Pittman. He knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly who his team is all the way down to the quarterback. And, you know, this is what they do. And he seems confident as hell in it when in reality, when he took the gig, there was really not a ton of reason to be confident other than just like self-belief. So I was impressed by him despite the play not working out. Let's get to the play call because this was the other aspect of it that I wanted to get to. Kiffin, credit to Nick Suss. I thought that was an interesting question. Suss was like, I'm just curious, what would you have done? Like, what did the analytics say? What was you guys' process? And Lane said, you know, I was actually thinking about that a lot of the way through the third and fourth parts of the fourth quarter. I said, if it came down to it, I think I'm paraphrasing here, but he was like, if it came down to it with the way the game was going, I was just going to kick and go to overtime. But he also added an interesting of it. He said, part of it is we had already used our two point play because don't miss, miss the opening extra point. They had to go for two to make it 14, 14. And he said, yeah, we have other two point conversion plays, but the one we felt the best about we had already burned. And I'm curious, like in your mind, how, important is that that's something i just feel like we don't think about through the course of a football game like when an important two-point conversion decision happens late in the game i've never once thought about well they did this and showed their two-point play earlier how important is that because like you mentioned it the play looked ugly but it seemed like arkansas was going back to the well to that first two-point conversion that they had and i was actually thoroughly impressed by their first two-point conversion it was right in front of where i was sitting in that end zone i was like this is that was a good draw up. I thought that was a very creative play. How much does that matter? And were you surprised they went back to a similar concept? Yeah, I mean, it matters a ton. You just have to have confidence in your decision. And Pittman knew what the play was going to be. Browse, clearly, they had talked about it and they were confident with that play. Kiffin, on the other hand, you know, a very clearly was not going to be as confident in whatever play they were going to draw up or had available for the two point conversion. So they didn't, they wouldn't going to run it. Um, it's just that's just kind of how you do it when you're talking through the game and you have all these things prepared, but you know, you can say you do, but you don't have four two point conversion plays prepared right. for a game. Like, that's just not how it works. You wouldn't, I mean, maybe you should, <laughs> maybe after this game, you right. should honestly kind of going with some of the analytic stuff and the decision making. One of the things that last year. Kiffin talked about a lot, and honestly, I was shocked 
they didn't do it during the game was on side kicking it after one of those drives. When the game's getting like that, Kiffin had mentioned the Alabama game last year. They thought about onside kicking a few times just because who cares? At that point, they're driving the ball down your throat 80 yards. Who, who's to say you won't stop them from 50 yards? And uh, I thought that after they went up seven in the fourth quarter, after I think the Snoop touchdown, I really thought they were going to onside kick it and try to get two possessions out of it and catch them off guard just because of the way the game was going. Uh, they didn't do it, but I would have been interested to see if someone would have asked him about that because that's something analytics-wise and, and the book we talk about here and there-wise. There is some, some of that in there, and they didn't do it, but uh, I thought they might have. That's a fascinating point you bring up. I hadn't really thought about that because that is part of the analytical deal. I would think of that, whatever, is that Pulaski Academy in Arkansas who does the whole they don't punt? They yeah. go for it every time. Like, I know some of that's not totally analytics, but it's in that same vein. No, 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 no. Ole Miss doesn't really onside kick. Didn't they try one against Alabama and get it last year? I, I want to say for some reason I think there was one in there, but and I'm sure I'm missing one, but just off the top of your head, can you think of one they've tried in the Kiffin era other than that? Like, I can't really think of it other than clearly the, you know, whatever, if they were down something late, the obvious onside kick. If they tried the surprise onside kick other than that one time, I can't think of a time. No, I don't think so. Not unless they had to um, that I can think of off the top of my head. But it, it's a conversation that, that has been had in that facility before because they mentioned it last year. And I, I was a little surprised they didn't do it. And I think, honestly, if you looked at the way Arkansas was set up on their kickoffs. I mean, I texted my family group text, said, watch out here. Like, an onside kick may be coming on one of these drives. And I think they actually had the look, but they didn't do it. Uh, or maybe they didn't have the look, and that's why they didn't do it. Uh, but it's a little surprising, but just the way the defense was playing. I mean, it was just getting gashed in the second half, which is kind of weird because as bad as the second half was on defense, I think the score was 24 to 14 with like eight minutes left in the third quarter. And the defensive analytically and just the style of play was working, which is crazy. But they just got worn down so badly. And eventually, Burke started making plays and it just completely fell out of hand. But um, who knows? It's just, it was a crazy game. I'm so glad you mentioned that because honestly, I swear I didn't send you this beforehand. The first note I had of the second half from watching the game again today was it was 24 to 14 with seven minutes and 21 seconds remaining in the third quarter. Look, I know football is a four-quarter game, and it doesn't matter, and you gave up 670 yards of offense, but you're right. Hold that thought for two seconds, though, because there was one last thing I wanted to revisit on the two-point conversion call. Yes. They go back to it, and so I was clearly – one disadvantage of watching the game in stadiums, particularly like if you not have like an optimal seat, was, of course, I didn't get a chance to kind of really like look and kind of dissect what they did on that two-point play and – like what actually happened, I literally just based my like what happened off of the student section going absolutely bananas <laughs> behind them. Like I was like, oh, okay, yeah. maybe they won. But did, what did you think of the play call? Because we mentioned kind of going back to the well with the similar concept. But I'm like you, I'm shocked they didn't run it with the way they were running the football. And honest to God, I know that wasn't a design run, and it's impossible to actually tell. If he just stuck his head down and was like, I'm getting this, even though it was a design throw, 
he looked like he might kind of had it. And it's not your typical quarterback. That guy's what, 6'5", 240. Like Big him team. getting ahead of steam and he looked like he had a little bit of space. He might could have run that sucker in and then he just kind of missed the throw. It just got out of whack. But I guess I'll start with here. Were you surprised they went back to the same concept? And two, what are your thoughts on two-point conversion plays eliminating one side of the field? Ooh, okay, two questions there. Uh, I was a little surprised they went back to a play they'd already run just because that kind of – the defense, these guys can see what's happening. You know, if right. you get fooled once, you know, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And the defense, credit to them, they did not get fooled by what they were trying to do. The, the play they ran earlier in the game was that sprint out. We, we talked about it a little bit earlier. The sprint out with, with KJ – one side of the field with the tight end kind of just blocking and then peeling off right there in the end zone, easy completion. That's what they were going for in that two-point play. Um, I, I just can't believe they didn't run it. I, I just can't believe you didn't put the ball in KJ's hands. Uh, maybe go five wide, spread, spread out the defense, and then have some sort of quarterback power and then just, just say it's either going to be you or me. Because um, that's the play call. You're, that's what the decision is in the, in the whole thing. You know, it's 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 either you or me. I'm winning this game, or you're winning this game. I would just put it in the guy who Ole Miss was not able to tackle in the second half and say, "Stop this big guy from getting in the end zone." Cam Newton esque wise, you know, against Alabama. Uh, I just I didn't agree with the call at all, and it did not work out. It didn't work out from the jump either. It was dead a dead play from the beginning. Um, what was your second part of that question? I can uh, just like, what is your opinion on eliminating one side of the field on two point plays like that? Like I, I know some people hate it, but also most of those people are not like football savvy. What are your just thoughts on kind of the whole rollout and eliminating, you know, a half to two thirds of the ground, the defense is going to have to cover when it's already a short, like clearly it's a short field three yard line. They don't have to cover that much territory in the first place. Yeah, I, I don't love it. Um, I don't call plays, so I, it's tough to exactly know what the the advantage of it is. There's always like the throwback component that teams have. So when you when you throw it, you roll to one side of the field. Everyone's assignments are still the same, but maybe you don't catch the guy coming out the other way. You see that two point play all the time. Uh, it's it's not what I would prefer. I would prefer your two yards. You either you go two ways about it. You either play hard nose football, run the ball, and say me versus you, um, or you spread them out. Maybe you run like a little screen play, that quick screen like the Patriots do, where you motion them. That's my favorite two point play ever. Is when you, they kind of motion yeah. the guy on trips and throw it right to him. Two blockers. Uh, th- there's so many different ways you can go about it. All the misdirection and everything. I. I don't love taking away one side of the field, but then again, it's two yards. So you can get the quick pass and make it happen, but clearly that's what they were going for. It just didn't work. You mentioned Ole Miss kind of being prepared for it, knowing what it was. And I thought maybe I'm wrong in this, but you know, Williams and whoever else was up on the defensive line, like was running at Jefferson, like a bat out of hell where the first time they ran it, it was not that they were frozen, but they for a team that didn't get much of a pass rush all day, there wasn't much of like a jailbreak you kind of see on rollout sometimes. Do you think that was a sign of them knowing, recognizing this was coming? Because it seemed like after about a half a second after that football was snapped, Williams and the other two defensive linemen knew exactly what the play was and just like made a beeline to him. I don't know what other responsibilities right. they have, but I guess the 
the way Ole Miss played it, the particularly the first five guys, I guess, from the line of scrimmage seemed very deliberate in what they were doing. Yeah, I think they probably had an idea. They talked about it in the huddle of this is definitely a possibility. If you see this formation or this setup, expect this. Uh, and then I think the other part of it is it's the last play of the game. You probably got yeah. enough adrenaline for, for three weeks. They just got right past him and broke it up and a credit to them. I, I, it was a little bit of both, I would imagine. Okay. And then the last thing you funny, you brought up the Cam Newton part of it. When I thought about like what the play call was going to like look like before it happened, I have no idea why I thought about this. And some of this was watching it today. I was not thinking, this, you know, a couple of beers deep in the rebel club yesterday, sure. but like the Cam Newton play in Seattle last year, they played that Monday night game back when we thought the Patriots were good and Cam Newton kind of fooled everybody. Remember he had the game of his life. His arm looked unbelievable where it came yeah. down to the end of the game where I can't remember if they had to score a touchdown or it was an actual two point conversion, but the ball was on the three yard line and they did the mono mono thing. It didn't work, but that's because Seattle made, I can't remember who it was. I'm one to go back and watch the video. It made one hell of a play on Newton diving into the end zone. I mean, a hundred times you've seen Newton do that in short yardage situations, 95 of them probably work seamlessly where he does the Superman thing after I'm just, I guess what I'm getting at is the odds of Ole Miss making that type of play at that point in the game with the way of running it seemed to be, Slim to none, maybe almost yeah. none. So I was surprised by that part of it. So that's probably – we've covered everything for the two-point conversion. Um, does the clock operator still have a job? I don't know who runs the clock, but I would imagine that, you know, after Keith Carter ran on the field and Kiffin calmed him down, they were kind of giving each other a hug. Like my first instinct would be fire him yesterday. What – how <laughs> – so <laughs> you know football better than I do. I think I know like the rule technically, but it seems like a very subjective thing because the guy in charge of stopping the clock is not on the field. He's way the hell up there. So what the hell can he see? What is the actual rule on stopping the clock on an incomplete pass? And um, I think we're in agreement here. The odds of that happening in Tuscaloosa or Baton Rouge, uh, zero, may, if there's possibly less than zero, what, give me your take on clock operating. What do you know about that? That's it. Only way I know how to ask it. I, my understanding is that the clock stops and the ball hits the ground. Right. So there is one second left. The worst part about it, I mean, you're at home in this kind of game on the last play. They're going to review it no matter what. So you putting it on zero, even if it's not zero, doesn't mean anything. But just the fact that they kept it on one second is insane. You would never see that in another SEC stadium for the rest of your life. Uh, <laughs> I just could not believe it. And I was honestly kind of just watching it and a little too amped up to even realize that that was a possibility. But that play was probably six seconds. The game was probably going to be over if he had just managed the clock correctly. He or she, assuming who it was, uh, they're not going to have that duty for much longer. That, that yeah, I can guarantee you. The, the six seconds part is probably the whole point of it because, one – Arkansas didn't – they look like to me – and I'll go back and watch the play one more time – but they look like to me they thought that was it. They had to win the game on that play right there. They were not hustling. You know, a lot of times you see it a lot more in the NFL where it's like, do I want to kick the field goal for halftime yet? Let's do a, you know, two-step drop and just throw it up the end zone real quick and run a plate in under five seconds. It didn't look like they were trying to do that. Like, they looked like they thought that, that, that was it for them. Like, I imagine Bryles and Pittman were like, holy hell, we have another shot at this? Like, I thought that was it. Yeah, That's the thing about the clock operating part of it, too. It's like, look, 
if Ole Miss goes down to Baton Rouge and there's nine seconds left and Corral does that same play and they let the clock operator bleed it out to zero, you're like, okay, come on now. Like, what is going on here? But six seconds, no one is ever doubting you for running the clock out, particularly with the play they ran. Like, it was just – I was with you. I looked up and I was like, there's no way there's one second left. And, like I you mentioned, they're going to review it. I don't think you can review it the other way. They couldn't have retroactively put zero on it, could they? So why not let it bleed out? Uh, I don't – I don't know if you could – they clearly you couldn't review it to put zero on it because they didn't. No, right. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't, I don't think, think you can do that. I don't think you can take a second off. Yeah, that, that I don't think you can do that at all. So you have no – there's no risk in just putting yeah. it on zero for the home team, whoever the hell that was. It's just – it's crazy. It's honestly one of the wildest things in the SEC where we love conspiracy theories to, like, almost hurt your own team when you had that kind of power was, was mind blowing. And, you know, I tweeted about it and whatnot and saw some, got some responses, but uh, don't think that's ever going to happen again. So hopefully <laughs> we won't have to worry about that. How, talk about, you know, I was going through my, I, was, I don't know why I was thinking about this on the plane today, but I was going through my mind and I was like, cause that was the first time I watched a game with my dad in a really long time, particularly in the stadium. And look, I mean, I think everyone knows I'm an Ole Miss alum. I grew up from the time I was, you know, a year old going to Ole Miss football games. Like, I guess, you know, quote unquote, I made it pretty clear that, you know, when you come into the job and you do the media thing, like that, the emotional attachment certainly fades. I don't believe you can do an accurate job if you're kind of emotionally wrapped up in the outcome. But that being said, I was a kid for a long time, normal kid, normal college student that went and saw a lot of this stuff, the illegal touching with Ogeron in 2006, uh, that they got screwed on with that, the Shea Hodge thing, um, less spiking in one second, I guess, is one of the few positive ones. Point being, I'd seen some like shit, and my dad is still kind of in that phase where I, the guy's 48 and 80% of the gray hair that he does have on his head probably started at Bought Hemingway Stadium. I just I was so dumbfounded that there were six seconds left. And then when they got to one, I guess I was what I'm trying to get. I was going through the rankings of like, who do you figure is most nervous in the stadium on the two point play? And I think the clock operator is a one seed and no, I don't even know who else fills out a bracket because <laughs> Kiffin's not getting fired. Like no. Pittman's the guy doing the the adrenaline gamble. Like, yes, are they nervous? Yes, it sucks. Like I imagine the players playing in the game, but there's no one else in that stadium more nervous for their head after then the clock operator, right? Cause I don't know what goes into clock operating. Um, I've done a stopwatch a time or two in my day. That's really my extent in the profession. Uh, but he had to realize, Oh, I screwed up here. Right. Like particularly when they scored one second left, like. Yes. <laughs> I mean, first of all, I couldn't believe they scored on the, the play with one second left. And that was just a completely broken play that yep. somehow he just kind of threw it up there. And the guy just happened to be there. Um, in typical Ole Miss fashion, uh, yeah, he had to be real nervous. And it was one of those games where I've been an Ole Miss fan, I guess, long enough to where I was expecting the worst. I've now been accustomed to what so many Ole Miss fans and my friends going to college had seen their whole lives. Because uh, LSU, they, they won all those games. Exactly. <laughs> With the exception of the the spike play, I was actually in Oxford for that for that game. But you know, the 2007, they threw the ball against Auburn with one second left, less miles. They score a touchdown, they win. Uh, Tennessee with less miles. There's 13 on the people on the field with Derek Dooley snap the ball over his head. Play gets reversed. LSU wins. 
Ole Miss has always been the opposite. It's they been lose every time. Fourth and 25, loss. Bo Wallace fumbling into the end zone, loss. It's always been the opposite end. And it was a refreshing and maybe a uh, a thought-provoking win for the Ole Miss fan base. So maybe don't always be so damn negative. Because yeah, some, from the psyche standpoint, happen. You're dead on there, though, because, I mean, the, the to be completely honest, the general sentiment as soon as that happened was, you know, I looked at my dad and I was like, that never happens. Like, they convert that 11 times out of 10. I actually think I fired off some stupid tweet about it. But, like, that, that never really happens. And so, you know, for, you know, for the lack of, like, a logical take on that game, I was just kind of looking at people yesterday because I saw a lot of guys I hadn't seen in a long time, like family, friends as well, that do the whole growth thing. And I was like, I don't really have a take on this. Maybe it's the dawning of a new day because Ole Miss really does not get on the right side of those things ever. So, you know, for the crowd that loves to have a couple and then put we are Ole Miss on the message boards, maybe cool it on that for like a week or two. I'm sure in three weeks we're going to have another situation and people are going to be pissed about that. But on the flip side of that, had they converted, look, I'm not a fan of this and I'm not advocating for it, so please don't confuse my words. But That poor clock operator, someone has figured out who that is and he's becoming an – I wouldn't say Steve Bartman-esque, but that's becoming a chapter in Ole Miss history that is not soon forgotten, unfortunately, as bad as that is. It was 100% that was what we were going to be talking about for, what, 45 minutes of this show today, had Arkansas converted that two-point conversion. I just really think it's as simple as that. Yeah, easily. That was easily going to be the topic of conversation. And unfortunately, some a-hole person is going to figure out who the guy was. And they're going to put his name on whatever, and he's going to get shelled for, unfortunately, really – it's deserving because it's ridiculous, but undeserving because he's a human being and it was a, mis- a mistake that probably would have been overturned anyway if they reviewed it. But, yeah, the, the We Are Ole Miss stuff and the I, – I can only remember in 15 and 14 when Ole Miss was really good my freshman, sophomore year. I mean, all my friends were just like, any big game was, yeah, we're going to lose this one. Like, just don't worry. Even throughout the game, like, against Bama at home, whenever uh, they missed the extra point, I think Gary missed the extra point. Everyone in the stands I was around was like, ah, oh, this one's over. They're going to go win 24-23. And I was just like, what are y'all talking about? Like, have some pride. <laughs> like, sometimes things do work out in your favor, and this one did. So, enjoy it a little bit. Maybe it'll be a changing, changing of the tides – in the games for the future, uh, or maybe it won't be, and it, it'll just go back to how it seems to have been over the past 20 or so years. But You, you really whatever. do have a fascinating perspective on that because you growing up in Baton Rouge and going to LSU games and then coming to Ole Miss, like, it, it's funny to hear you say that word. You're like, what is wrong with you guys? Like, what, what, what is the deal with this? And then, like, maybe a couple, like, I imagine what you were a freshman with the Treadwell game and then the fourth and 25 and you're like, okay, maybe I kind of get this little more. Yeah. I can kind of see a little That's more. What I was, yeah. That's what I was saying about this game is going down when they were driving. I was like, yeah, this is the uh, this is the feeling I've yet to feel, but I just don't think they're going to win this game. And that's just me becoming a, an old Miss person, I guess, because there was zero confidence in me. And we mentioned it earlier, but Braylon Sanders should have gone down at the one-yard line. <laughs> he should have done it. He I bet you Kiffin might have even been thinking about it. There was too much time left. He should have gone down at the one, and they should have bled the clock out and uh, kicked a field goal and won the game. Uh, and that's what I would have wanted because I couldn't handle watching that defense 
go through a one minute and seven second drive because I just had no confidence. And it's sad that I've come to this, but that was just the reality of the situation. <laughs> right. Just, growing up, it never happened. LSU won all the big games for with when I was growing up. They, they just did not lose big games. And it, unfortunately, now I have this horrible mindset that I need to get rid of. That's a, that's a great transition to kind of clean it up some like final thoughts on the other aspects of this game, but you're right. Like, it, you know, logical me, I guess like reporter brain was sitting there. I was like, Arkansas is not going to go down the field in a minute and seven seconds with the way they've been running the ball because I mean, with the way they've been moving the ball, because it was just, a little, I mean, yes, they had explosive plays. Don't get me wrong. But in that situation, you're talking about riding on the back of KJ Jefferson squarely. There's not much running to be done, I guess is my point. But then at the yeah. other side of me, it was like, no, they're absolutely going to turn this into an absolute sweater down to the last second. And of course that ends up happening. That probably brings up a good point to kind of transition to, you know, other aspects of this game, particularly on the defensive side of the football, because I think we hit a lot of the offensive stuff. You mentioned it. I'm glad you brought this up a minute ago when I was said, hold that thought. It was weird in the sense that, yes, can like, is it a good defensive performance when you give up 670 yards or whatever it is? I have it up here in a second. Uh, let's see what it was, total yards. 676, 52 points, 37 in the second half. No, it's not, but I'm glad you mentioned that because it was 24 to 14 with 729 to play. And that's a little bit skewed because Arkansas scored on the next play and they were already driving. But you kind of yeah. get my point. If yeah, yeah. you had told this, like the way now that we've seen it, now after the Alabama game, if you had told fan, coaching staff, whomever, it's not realistic kind of hypothetical. So just for the sake of the argument, when maybe it's a fan, maybe it's Kiffin, who knows? If you gave him truth serum and said, if every game the rest of the year you play, the opponent has 14 points halfway through the third quarter, don't you feel good about your chances? They're probably taking that deal, right? Versus every the game. unknown every time. Yeah, every single time. And that's why I brought it up earlier, because when I was watching the game and for some reason I was, you know, kind of looking at the board because I'd never really done that during games, but that's a a show in itself credit i've yet to, to do that i might need to try that yeah credit to people who can actually who can do that um but they were yeah they were getting gashed the whole game we really were getting gashed running the play but that's they were accepting that the defense was kind of built for giving up plays bending not breaking and hoping they made a mistake and they did they made multiple mistakes they uh chance campbell got a fumble they missed a field goal Everything that they were planning on defense through three quarters was working exactly what they wanted it to do. The unfortunate part was really twofold. One, the offense never really took a lot of advantages when the defense got a stop in the, in the first half. Then no, I think they didn't score except for that field goal to start the second half whenever they had the advantage. And two, they just got worn down once it became a track meet. Burst yeah, you're dead on. You nailed yeah. that. They they wasted both stops. You know, it's our two stops a half theory. They I know the defense wasn't good, but they got a second stop. They got two stops in the first half, and one of them was a hell of a play by Chance Campbell where you're just kind of like, I'm taking your football and I'm creating a turnover. So they got you yeah. a stop and a turnover. And I know it's a weird way to look at football games, but this is kind of old Mrs. Reality, and it's not anything new. It's been this way for half a decade now. And you're right. Oh, I thought it was very – it's weird to kind of fault the offense for the way Matt Corral played and the way they played, but this is kind of the way this is designed. When your defense kind of gives you a gift and gives you a stop, it's weird to say that it's a gift. You kind of need to take advantage. There were multiple times where Ole Miss could have taken 
full control of this game and kind of created some separation and they weren't able to do it. And I'm going to sound like a defensive apologist over the next 15 minutes, us discussing this or so. And it's not really my intent, but I do think there is some context to view some of this stuff in, but that's also important from the standpoint from a team that's kind of built to play in a close game being Arkansas, you know, they're going to have to throw it a lot more and they're not going to be able to be as patient as they were. If you take advantage of those two stops and say you're up like 17 points or something at one point, like separation against a team like that is important. And Ole Miss did not take advantage of it. Um, One of the things I wanted to get to, this is probably a good place to start defensively is I thought I saw this the other, I can't remember. I should have bookmarked it. A former player on Twitter was really ragging on the three, two, six. I can't remember this guy's name. And I hate that because um, he made it. I thought it was an interesting point. So Ole Miss clearly got gashed against the run. That seems to be their biggest problem. I saw some of the Austin keys, three linebacker thing. I, they play them really far back at times too. So I'm not positive what they're trying to do. And I don't mean that from like an incompetency standpoint. I'm just not smart enough or football savvy enough to know. But this guy was making the point with the three, two, six, that they're pretty much wasting whatever talent or advantage that you could try to create on the defensive line with the three, two, six, because he mentioned you have, you know, in some cases, 250, 260 pound dudes getting double teamed because you're only bringing three. What are your thoughts on the, how the, I guess how the three, two, six sets up for the defensive line, because I wish I could find this tweet and I'll find it in a second, but I didn't think it was totally without merit to where, okay, they're not that deep. They're not that talented. And these guys are kind of copping double teams every time. That doesn't really seem like an advantageous uh, way to use them because it doesn't, another aspect of it, Ole Miss didn't really seem like they blitzed a lot either. Just your thoughts on how the defensive line fares in this three, two, six, because they, they seem to be kind of at a built in disadvantage if that makes any sense at all. It, it does make sense, but I think the, the biggest issue is just the lack of real playmakers on the defensive line to make this Great point. work. They're not the only ones doing this. This is not some Ole Miss uh, invented scheme. It's one that many teams use and have started to use just because teams throw the ball so much um, that we don't have a player on the edge that can, that can break a double team. Like double teams happen. And if you've got a really good player, a lot of times you just squeeze through it and you break it. And that's just how you make plays. This, they don't have three guys who can get a pass rush on third and long out of three, two, six. I think that was one thing I didn't love. Out of the whole scheme deal, I, I, I'm not a defender of it, but I understand it and I understand why they were doing it. And I will even admit that it was working to what they wanted to do for three quarters. And then it didn't. Um, that you can't ignore that at all, but not being able to have one guy because you're it's going to be a one on one somewhere, right? Either you're going to be a one on one center in the nose, one on one with a tackle in the end, or the other tackle in the end. That Ole Miss just hasn't had a guy that can beat anybody on a pass rush this whole entire season, Sam Williams included. He has been completely nullified as a pass rusher if he doesn't just break off you know beat him on the outside and get to the quarterback um but that kind of brings me to what I was saying was why not bring a little bit of pressure why not have an idea where you can have the three down linemen and then have Sam be the stand-up linebacker I thought that going into this game they were going to implement at least a wrinkle where they would have some four down linemen or at least a three four look and 
if I remember correctly, I think even on the first play they did it, the first play of the game, I think they had three down linemen and a stand-up backer outside the tackle, and they never did it again for the rest of the game. It just is a little bizarre that – They got to stop on that series to further your point. Exactly. That, that you're going you're gonna to die by the scheme, and I don't fault them necessarily for that. But to just the lack of diversity for an entire game is where it really gets me. Just not having any other kind of wrinkle – I guess not trusting your DBs to blitz one or two guys. It's just as it's a little bizarre to me. That that's my biggest uh, issue with what's going on uh, with this defense is not the actual scheme itself, but really just the lack of wrinkles, the lack of second option. Just so much crazy stuff that I just can't believe there isn't at least more they can do and try to do. Yeah, I think that's really well said because. I, I'm kind of the same way, and I'm not like a football expert by any means, but you're, you're right in the sense that, one, Ole Miss didn't invent this. Uh, hell, one of the – Kiffin mentioned – I went back and watched the Louisville postgame or whatever, and he was talking about how they got it from Iowa State, like a lot of the concepts. He was like, we saw them do this last year. They kind of have a similar build to us defensively, and so we were like, why not? We'll try this. But you're, to your point, and I found the tweet. So it's Gerald Rivers, who I didn't remember at all. Uh, no offense to Gerald Rivers. He looked like he played like four or five years in the league. Some Canada up there. Graduated in 2013. That's probably all I don't remember him. He came in with the bad Houston Nut teams and came out before Ole Miss was like good, good. But he said at some point Ole Miss is going to have to realize that this 3-2-6 is not working. You can't stop the run in it, and you your D-line is in such bad position that they can't properly rush, and you don't bring any extra pressure as a defensive guy it's tough to watch. Herbert Moore, who's another former player, kind of mentioned the same thing. And he went on to say, you know, the first time they brought four, they got a sack. And then his response was no prep with no, pre- this is the part that I kind of agree with. I don't, dis- I don't agree with the whole, this isn't working thing. Like I'm kind of with you. I understand why they do it, but his response, him being Rivers, said with no pressure whatsoever, no additional pressure, someone is bound to get open. There's 245, 250 pound DNs in three, four techniques getting double teamed which whatever but I kind of agree I think there's there's some middle ground here like the whole like this is not working is probably a little extreme based on like okay what else are they going to do but to your point the lack of creativity and kind of the no extra blitzing or putting a you know no variance or variation from it is kind of putting these defensive linemen in a bad spot which you know some of it's on them like you said but at a certain point if you don't have the dynamic playmakers to kind of beat a double team shouldn't you kind of compensate for it because the, the whole just dropping it, rushing three, and even a guy like Jefferson having all day to throw, that doesn't seem to work against the run or the pass. Like, I don't know. Is there, is there a certain element of if you're not that talented, be a little more reckless and aggressive? Is there anything to that at all? Because it seems like they're not doing that. You, there is a little bit to it. Um, they must really just not trust the back end if they're not going to bring any pressure and they want to have as many back there. Um but I don't know that everything you said is completely correct. I just, the lack of adjustment, the lack of really creativity must just be the lack of trust in some of the guys in the back end. That, that must be what it is. And I, I don't know. I mean, I, the guys who have played that tweeted and commented on it, I mean, they, they know probably a little bit more football than even I do. And that's actually not, maybe they definitely do. Um, 
So there, there is something there. I think it all, though, starts with the lack of pressure on the defensive line in any form. I mean, in terms of the end of the game, like I was saying when it was working, it was working because they were setting the edges, and even though they were kind of getting them up the middle, there was not a whole lot of explosive plays. Right. They were getting dunked for five or six here and there, but what that's kind of what they can accept and deal with. But towards the end of the game, Sam and Tavius and Cedric, they were just sticking their head in a double team and completely giving up the edge and letting right. Sanders and them just get around them. That's why it started to fall apart so badly. So why not have an extra guy in the box there? an extra guy on the edge there to set it and help the guys who have had to play 80 or 90 snaps on the defensive line. Cause as we've mentioned, there's only so many of those guys they trust out there. Uh, it, it's gotta be addressed moving forward. There has to be, you're not going to change the scheme and we'll talk about Tennessee. You're definitely not changing it for them. Uh, but just some sort of wrinkle has to be implemented, whether it's bringing more pressure or having a guy as a stand-up in here or there. I don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to have to happen. Kiffin, to your point about them not trusting the back end, Kiffin mentioned in his post-game press conference, we didn't play well – these are his words – we didn't play well at corner today. And then I'm kind of paraphrasing from well from there, but he was basically like, look, these are older guys. Like, they're just going to have to play better. This is not like, hey, let's figure it out, you know, the classic cliche, like open competition thing. He's like, look, these are veteran guys that have played a lot of football. They have to play better. So I didn't necessarily notice that per se. I know Traylon Burks lost a couple guys, but like he would obviously know better than I do from like, you know, if he's that clear immediately after the game without watching it on film and definitively saying we played terribly at corner today, there's probably something to that. And then to your point on kind of, like you mentioned, no wrinkles, no variation to it. I had an Arkansas guy on for the Wednesday podcast. And so I watched about an hour of Arkansas's games, kind of condensed games against both A&M and Texas and a little bit of Georgia, but there wasn't a ton you could gain from that. And I asked the guy the, a question about, seems like they're a little more aggressive in like blitzing the linebackers this year. And I don't even remember what the answer was, but he just said, look, they play a three, three, five base, but Arkansas is not going to sit in that the entire game because you're going to see them be very multiple. And that guy, a light bulb kind of went off. I was like, well, Ole Miss does just kind of sit in the same thing the entire time. Like they're not very multiple in that at all. And I know Arkansas probably has a little more flexibility, but they're not overly like night and day more talented than Ole Miss on that side of the ball. I just think they utilize their guys well. Like Yes, their defensive line's better. Talk about guys beating double teams. They're more dynamic up there, but it's not like a, unfair fight like Alabama defense versus Ole Miss defense. It's a little closer, but Arkansas seems to be way more creative under Barry Odom than Ole Miss has been. Yes. I, I, whoever you were talking to is, is, I mean, that's completely correct. I mean, Arkansas, even in this game, did, did different things. They brought more pressure. They, they got to corral a few times later in the game. Um, I guess you were talking about the DB play. Uh, I mean, Burks is just a monster. Prince was not even in bad position on both those deep balls on that drive. Just Burks is just – he's just so much bigger and more physical. Um, I think Ole Miss probably will watch this game and see the scheme Arkansas ran and hopefully see what worked against, you know, their own offense and try to put something like that into, the, into next week uh, against a Tennessee team that's going to be a semi-mirror image of what Ole Miss does except for even faster – I, I don't know what they're going to do, but there's going to have to be a change because of how frustrated Kiffin was visibly in the post-game interview and after the game. Um, and I guess one quick 
kudos on the defensive side was Miles Battle's best game by far. Played played really, really well. Um, and that's why it's a little weird that they wouldn't trust the DBs a little bit more because I think they've got some corners they trust, but maybe it's that safeties are young. I mean, I think Trey Washington played a lot. Tysheem Johnson played a ton. So they're definitely talented but really young back there and probably don't want them going up against Burks and guys that they have on Arkansas. Who knows? It, there's a lot to dissect from what happened defensively, but it's not working for full games anymore, and there has to be something done. Yeah, you're right. I'm curious to see what they do about it, too, because, again, it's like kind of the great ba- like balance of, okay, well, what can they do with the personnel they have? And then clearly after, like you mentioned, after this one, like they have to do something. I think you kind of nailed it with the lack of wrinkles. Like, look, I get they may be a little hamstrung. We talk about them not trusting the defensive linemen. I didn't think Gordon or Iton were necessarily good. But there, I think there was some element of, look, these are the guys and we have to put them out there. I haven't seen the snap counts yet, but I'm fairly confident Jamon Gordon played more than he played at any point in the season. And Iton was out there a lot as well. So yeah. maybe they're kind of slowly coming around to it. And maybe that leads to a few more wrinkles next week. But you're dead on with it that something has to change because, again, it's not working. And then the weird part about it is, and this was some of the notes I wrote down, like was you mentioned they're up being 24-14 halfway through the third quarter, and then they get worn down and all hell was broken loose. In their defense on the next drive, or maybe it was two drives after, so they didn't get to stop. Like when Ole Miss, you know, I guess in, I would say this, in the last like couple of years, particularly that 2018 defense, definitely the 2020 defense, when Ole Miss gets stuffed on the fourth and one and they're down 24-21, or they're up 24-21, like to me that 2020 defense has given up a touchdown probably 10 times out of 10 at least nine out of 10, definitely the kind of West McGriff 2018. Like they bowed their neck a little bit at some important time. They do get the takeaway. And I know this is like basic level stuff. And like, it sounds like the bar set pretty low, but they did have a few moments that were kind of important in the game that Arkansas was driving early in the game. And the chance Campbell fumble, even though Ole Miss didn't do anything with it was kind of a momentum swinger. It was like, okay, now that they kind of got a shot here, because Arkansas was really kind of moving up down the field at will. So in their defense, they did kind of do the whole bend but don't break thing just enough times to win. But by no means does that mean I think the performance was good. But do you – that's what I was going to ask you next. Do you think the way the last, what, 21 minutes of the game transpired was simply just them getting just worn down? Because there was one drive, and I can't remember what it was. Um, I, I think I'd have to go back and look. But it was after Ole Miss had scored, and it was like, okay, if you get a stop here, like you kind of really got a shot, like uh, you kind of create some separation, put this game to bed. And in their defense, Burks just mossed a guy and then made another hell of a catch, and then K.J. Jefferson flipped in from the one. Like that's not, quote-unquote, getting gashed. That's just a dude kind of being a beast. You were high on Burks. Obviously, he's one of the best receivers in the SEC. Like there was some stuff in there towards the end of the game where K.J. played a hell of a game, threw probably better than he did at any point. And then there was – that one drive where Burks pretty much just scored the touchdown by himself with two ridiculous catches. Yeah, it wasn't. That's what I was there. saying. He mossed. He mossed uh, Prince twice, and Prince wasn't even really in bad position. It was just players making plays. But if you're gonna play that way, like you just you know that's coming. Um, I, I th- there's gonna be a lot to talk about from this defensive performances. I think you've mentioned there were some silver linings to the way they played. I think Miles Battle was one. Um, the defensive line, they all played really poorly. Um, honestly, didn't see a whole lot from Otis Reese 
he was kind of lost in the in the scrum a, a ton on some of those running plays. But like we've mentioned multiple times, their plan was working. But the problem is when it didn't begin to continue to work towards the end of the game, there was nothing new done. It was just kind of, you know, crossing your fingers and hoping that they could make another play or two, and they just weren't making them. So at that point, you've just got to be able to figure something else out. And uh, I think that's going forward what they're going to have to do. Yeah, I think that's the best way to articulate it. It was like it actually was kind of working for a while. And in some of this, just the way modern football is going, like it, it's probably – this is probably a better example to use like with the NFL because in college you can have big talent disparities and you don't get as wide a range of that in NFL. But like I, I, I was listening to someone – some ringer podcast, their NFL show, and Kevin Clark was making the point that was like, look, like the days of like massive defensive overhauls trying to get like a legion of boom or like the 85 bears or something are kind of over. Like the kind of name of the game is to get a little bit intermittently more talented and just be really damn good in the red zone. Cause the way modern football, the rules are going and the way offenses are can kind of operate and everything set against the defense is kind of what I'm getting at is it seems like these NFL yeah. guys now are cool with giving up yardage, but just kind of being good in the red zone and forcing a lot of field goals instead of touchdowns. It's just kind of the way football is going. That seemed to be, like you mentioned, Ole Miss's plan. And for a while, it was okay. You get the turnover down near the red zone. You stop them on the short field. There were some you know, bad, I mean, good-ish moments, I guess. I think Arkansas was technically eight for eight in the red zone, so I sound like an idiot saying this. But that seems to be what they're trying to do. It just didn't work, like you said, and then there was no there was no changing once it didn't work. They were just kind of helpless. Yeah. I mean, that, that that's the, the name of the game. The story of what happened was this – no adjustments, and even though the goal is to be better in the red zone when the field shrinks, they just still weren't. There was no, you know, I mean, not one time, I think this entire season, has Ole Miss, like, brought seven and just said, beat me one-on-one if you can. Right. And teams have done that to Ole Miss plenty of times and gotten through the offensive line and made a play. You just haven't seen that with this team, and I think they have the – the uh, athletes to do it. I mean, that one sky, uh, spy blitz they had with Chance Campbell when he sat KJ, which was a huge was play. Huge. They, they, they only ran that once, and that was the only real adjustment I saw they made the entire game was they kind of had Chance and a little bit of a spy on KJ, but they, they didn't only – they only brought him once. They, it, the other times he's just kind of sitting there spying, which honestly just takes another guy out of their run responsibilities. Just a weird dynamic because I want to believe in what they're doing and I, I still kind of do, but when you see what happens when it breaks down, it's just not pretty. And I know they don't have Jake Springer, but no offense to him, like General Thomas on the bench, you know, it, right. it's not, it, that's not the reason this team isn't playing that well. Uh, they're just going to have to figure something out because they're going to be running into a gauntlet of an offense next week and who is on fire right now and has a scheme that, is really, really good, but just not with that great of players, really. Um, so it's just going to be a matter of time before they can figure out some sort of adjustment to it. Kind of last couple of macro thoughts before we get to the SEC and kind of spin a little bit towards next week, like you were hitting at a second ago, was another aspect of it was I thought K.J. Jefferson was good, but he missed a couple really big throws. And yes. not every team – Yes, the 24-21 where Ole Miss tied, like they held him to the field goal. He misses that guy. I don't know if it was a slant for sure, 
But the guy yeah. that was wide open in the middle of the end zone, he knew he missed him. And credit to McElroy on the broadcast I was listening to this morning. He was all over. He was like, those are the kind of throws you remember for, you know, weeks and honestly all the season. Like, that'll eat at you. And not every team has a Matt Corral. And I think part of the game came down to that because you know who didn't miss the most important throws of the game? Matt Corral. In fact, he did yeah. the opposite. The throw to Braylon Sanders to make it, what was that, 45-38 was yeah. just absurd. I mean, he his, his back foot's on the 33-yard line. He throws it like he's just kind of like, you know, flicking a pee or something. And it's on stride, on the money. Sanders made a good diving catch because that ball was about as close to being overthrown without being overthrown. It was like in that perfect zone. And not every team has that. And I think Arkansas kind of sorely missed that in some spots in this game. That was, to me, one of the bigger differences in the game was just Ole Miss was better at quarterback, and that mattered in some really crucial spots. Corral was pretty much flawless. Yeah, we continue on this podcast, and maybe this the whole fan base, take what you have at the quarterback position for granted because there's not really anyone in the country that can make the throws that this kid is making. I mean, honestly, the most impressive one, obviously the 65-yarder to Braylon was ridiculous, but the fourth and four one to Drummond where he just crow-hopped and ripped it like Brett Favre in there, and kudos to Drummond for having the hands he does to be able to just catch it with ease. It's just that's just not normal throws. People just don't do that in this league and in college football. And I mean, we we can stop with the Heisman stuff because that that award is has been watered down as has every single award in football. But this kid's the best player in college football right now, just right now as of today. Uh, and it, I hope he continues to play this way. I hope they continue winning games so he can get the respect he deserves. But we haven't talked about him enough. I mean, Corral was ridiculous today from every single aspect. And it's just, he's phenomenal. They don't win this game without him, obviously. And going forward, there's going to be games where he's just going to have to continue to make plays like this. or they're, they're going to be in trouble. He, he was amazing. It sounds like you may be down on his chances to win it strictly based off the, we talked about the whole narrative, my favorite word in the book, but the, the way the awards hijacked, are you kind of like thinking that goes that they don't win enough, someone less deserving wins it? That kind of sounds like what you might be getting at a little bit. Uh, I'm leaning. I'm starting to see that. The odds are still back in his favor after the Alabama loss where Bryce Young looked mortal, looked more mortal than mortal. He, he had a worse game than Corral did when they played at Alabama. Um, but it just it's just all about winning. It's all about your – your Twitter sphere, and there's so many freaking Heisman voters who none of them really give a shit. And he's Corral has so many weird, I guess there's not a better word, the narratives about him that I can see some of these guys just not really being interested in voting for an Ole Miss quarterback, specifically Matt. And maybe I'm way off base and he's got more national credibility than I think he does. But it's going to be half a deal where he's going to have to play so damn well that they, they just are forced to give it to him because, you know, the Texas running back, yeah, they lost, but holy crap, that kid's unbelievable. Bama's probably not losing another game. So Bryce Young will still have his chances and who knows with Cincinnati, what this Ritter kid will do, but he's not even, he's not close to Corral as talented and he's not going to have the numbers Corral has. It'll be an interesting, uh, kind of a season-long thing to look at. I just don't see anyone playing better than him or anyone that is better than him. And it's a quarterback award despite last year, and he's the best one by leaps and bounds. 
I make fun of television statistics sometimes for just being completely obvious. Like occasionally, and I look like yeah, you got to feel airtime and stuff, and it's like it happens. But like occasionally, like you'll get a stat. I mean, it's never this ridiculous, but like ESPN will throw something up there, and it's like, you know, Ole Miss is ten and zero when they score more points than the other team. I'm like, thank you, Captain. Like I really appreciate that. <laughs> like how did that ESPN stats and info really did some digging on that one, but. To their credit, this was a good one that I wrote down that I wouldn't have seen if I hadn't rewatched the game. Matt Corral is the only Power 5 quarterback to average 9.5-plus yards of attempt and yet to have a turnover. That's a pretty good number. I like that yeah. stat. I think that's Absolutely. telling. Plus, I think he's accounted for it's like 16 touchdowns and zero turnovers. So I'm no guessing that's a pick because I know he had the strip sack or whatever against Alabama. That's not really on him. I, you know, I figure that, that maybe I mean, it must be a it must be an interception. Yeah, I think he's got like 20 total touchdowns, running and throwing, with like no interceptions. I think the fumble is not really counted against him. That seems that like stat. a pretty good ratio. The last thing I wanted to ask you for like a couple macro thoughts, then we'll just bounce around and get out of here. But the, what do you make of the receiving core? Because like there were a couple times like Matt Corral had 15 carries, I think 14 or something, and just a I guess I would guess that that four of them were scrambles and some of them were just, he was trying to find someone open and couldn't, what do you kind of make of this kind of banged up receiving core? Cause you know, there wasn't a guy that had more than two catches in this entire game. Um, I, I, are they struggling to get open? Are they struggling to create separation? What's your kind of take on it? I was a little surprised by the numbers. Look, like you mentioned, Drummond had the biggest catch of the game. Dennis Jackson had a big, or no, it was Jaden. Jaden had a big catch. Um, yep. you know, drumming, they did enough, but I just feel like at times they're struggling to get open against better secondaries. Maybe I'm off base with that, but what's kind of your take on it? I think they're kind of patching it together right now, realizing that they'll probably be without Mingo for a while. Uh, Braylon is clearly the deep ball guy. He's the deep ball threat. He's the guy they're going to go to, to break the top off. I think they've got to develop a secondary option. That's not drumming on a slant. Uh, whether that's, you know, Chase Rogers getting a little bit into the, the fold a little bit more. I know he had a few catches early. Casey Kelly has not been much of a factor to begin this season. I know he was injured, but I, I think you'll probably see him a little bit more. And then the rest is kind of Jaden Dennis. Uh, I mean, Pearson, Plumley, match, mixing and matching and seeing who's the right person at the right time. Uh, there's really not much more they can do with it. I think they're going to scheme around the issue they have, and that's the best thing that Kiffin and Levy have. So I don't know if it's going to be that big of an issue and they're going to figure a way around it, but it's definitely glaring to an extent. Yeah, I think glaring to an extent is probably a pretty good way to put that. And so I'll contend this to you. I thought about this earlier today, kind of when I was trying to figure out, okay, what is actually happening here and, like, what is the problem? They ran the ball pretty damn well without Jerry on Ely. And we kind of made fun of the whole, like, the, there's always one narrative. This word pops up every damn podcast, whatever. It, there's always one narrative it, that's not so. necessarily rooted in fact that pops up every uh, fall camp. And I, I'm not making fun of media. I was guilty of it when I worked in it as well. It's just you hear coaches kind of put something out there and then, you know, it's really just the mundaneness of covering fall camp. After like a week and a half, you don't have anything to actually write about because you don't actually know anything until they go play a game. And so yeah. you kind of take off with one thing and run with it like wildfire. And we kind of poke fun at the whole idea of 
using Ely in the passing game and in the slot more is now if what they kind of look like they, I, don't, I wonder if you're Kiffin tomorrow and you look at what we did in the running game without Jared on Ely, like do you maybe open it up for that and try to supplement it some, I don't know what Ely's like in the slot. I don't know what his hands is. I don't know how that hands are. I don't know how that would translate, but it seems like it could be possible at this point. Would you be open to that at all? Yeah, I mean, it could be possible. Um, I said after kind of the Louisville and Austin P on this podcast that I didn't never really understood the whole Ely playing all these different positions because it just didn't make any sense to me. Um, now, do you look at it now? Possibly, but I remember saying it and then they still haven't done it. Like he's right. not really been in the slot at all. And I'm not surprised by that at all. Um, will something change? Maybe is this the opportunity to look at that change possibly, but it's, it's so much more difficult than people realize, even if you're a slot guy moving to outside, it's, it's almost not the same. It's not the same position. So the idea that you can just move Drummond out wide or put Plumley at the X receiver and move Braylon in the slot and just, you know, keep on keeping on. It just doesn't really, doesn't really meticulate like that. It's, it's so much more nuanced and, I think they can put in some packages and some different things, but I don't think you're going to see him playing receiver with the other two in the backfield. I just, I don't think they have that in the, in the arsenal for this offense yet. We'll see. It'll be interesting to see kind of how that goes. At the end of the day, Ole Miss made enough plays to win the game. And, you know, that's kind of been not always the case. I would say in the, even in some of Kiffin's games, I mean, last year, obviously like there was a good year for them. They weren't as talented, but there were a couple of games they probably could have won and they just didn't really make enough plays late. So credit to Ole Miss for getting this done. Cause as you mentioned, this is a game with massive, massive implications. And that's probably a good enough transition to kind of bounce around the sec. It's like, okay, like, I, look, I don't necessarily buy it. I, I think the way the sec has played out, I think Ole Miss is going to have a lot more of these games. And I don't even necessarily mean it coming down the last play. I just think everyone they play over the next seven weeks is going to kind of be a dogfight. And you'll kind of walk into the game not really knowing what's going to happen. Like, I don't have a feel for how it's going to go in Knoxville next week. I think Ole Miss is better. I don't have a feel for A&M coming to Oxford. The only one I have a feel for is now is we can get to this in a second is the LSU Tigers. Like I think Ole Miss will probably take advantage of that, but seriously, outside of that, I mean, state won in college station two weeks ago. I don't think they're good, but like, I just think it's going to be a whole lot of like, okay. Like, could they run the table? Sure. Could they lose, you know, every other game, but one or two left. Okay. Sure. Like I would believe anything. So in this kind of muddled down sec, what not muddled down sec West, there's less separation there's been in years past, particularly two through seven. This was a massive, massive game because, look, I know Alabama beat – or A&M beat Alabama, but I swear to God, if you're making me kind of wager on teams from a confidence scale, Alabama not included, taking them out. Right. I might pick Ole Miss and Arkansas over every other team in the West. I, I don't know that for sure, but I'm also not totally against that idea either. I guess what I'm getting at is we know so little, and them winning this game and surviving Arkansas getting the hell out of there with the win is massive. And I don't know what the possibilities are for this season, but, you know, your ceiling was greatly lowered had you not come out of this on top. This was Correct. a huge swing game. Yeah, I mean, th- this was a, uh, a New Year's Six, Sugar Bowl, great trip for your fan base kind of result, potentially. Yes. But I think you're completely correct. It's not that Ole Miss is now like a team that we don't think is good anymore. I think now we're just seeing that some of these teams are kind of hitting their stride and no one's really bad. 
I mean, Mississippi State, Tennessee, um, you know, Kentucky is clearly really good. Uh, Florida, A&M, they might have had bad results so far, but they aren't bad football teams. And even before this was the case scenario, I, we both said that guaranteeing Ole Miss is going to go beat Tennessee and Auburn on the road is, is not the mindset you should have. These teams are talented, and those are hard places to win football games. And now I think it's just even more. And it's not necessarily Ole Miss's fault. It's just we've clearly seen the SEC is, is hard and is kind of competent from a everyone below Alabama standpoint than it has been in a while, especially in the West. The East, you still got three or four teams that they're literally suck. But in the West, with the exception of the shit show in Baton Rouge, everyone else is incredibly competent. Yeah, I think, yeah, you're right. Like, it's like, like you said, no one is bad. Like, so I don't know. It's kind of, it's going to be awesome to watch. It's going to make for, I mean, if Alabama could somehow lose one more time, then it would be really kind of interesting. Yeah, but even fun. just like from a New Year's Six perspective, two through seven, it's going to be like, I don't know. It's going to make for incredibly c- c- compelling and frustrating television, I imagine, for fans. I think it's going to be awesome to look at and kind of see how the rest of this plays out. But yeah, it's just, you know, there was a period in there. It looked real bad for Tennessee through about two and a half weeks to where I was kind of like, okay, maybe like Ole Miss maybe just goes in there and blows the doors off of them. But I'm also, of course, firmly back in the camp now. No, that's not going to happen. Um, like probably not even close. It's going to be a dogfight. And, you know, if for a program in its second year under this regime, you're in the mix and you're relevant every week and you're going to play a lot of compelling games. I don't really know what else you could ask for. And, so you watched a lot of football this weekend. It sounds like you got to watch, uh, you know, the old Miss game, like you mentioned that, you know, friendly confines of the home. I was not, I was at the game, but I actually watched more football than I thought I was going to. Where do you want to start? I guess we'll go Alabama A&M. I was stunned by this result. So my girlfriend's father is a big LSU guy. So we were at their place eating uh, around dinner time when this was picking up. And I was kind of trying to keep up with Alabama A&M on my phone, but not really. And all of a sudden, like I, come, I see it coming across the score ticker, and everybody in the room, at, like that was watching the games, were like, "Hold on, like what is that?" And it said seventeen to seven a And M. And so we yeah. flipped it on for basically the rest of that game. We kind of flipped back and forth. But uh, shout out to LSU for just rolling over. That made the remote control decision quite easy. <laughs> well, what did you see from this game? I was the fact that A and M scored forty one points, and I know it wasn't all offense, so we can get to that. With Zach Calzada at quarterback on Alabama is not something I had on my uh, my takes list no. this week. What were your thoughts on this game? I kind of agree with you. Bryce Young to me looked human from an accuracy standpoint because the raw numbers were like what he threw for three sixty eight or something like that, three touchdowns, but he's twenty eight of forty eight. Just thoughts on this game? I was stunned by this result. Uh, it was completely stunning. I was at a uh, an LSU kind of little house get together party to watch that game and. Uh, it was funny, as you mentioned, them just laying over and quitting uh, about one drive into the game. Uh, all my friends had money on Michigan, so we were <laughs> we were watching <laughs> flipping between Michigan, Nebraska, and Alabama A and M. And every time we flipped Alabama, Alabama and A and M, A and M was just winning. And we're sitting there, you know, everyone's looking at the live line. We're like Alabama's only a, it's like they're even odds to win this game right now. And most times it would be like they're still favored by 10 right. and A&M showed what the best way to explain what A&M showed is they are actually talented. Whereas people thought LSU were, was talented. A&M with the exception of Calzada who 
played the game of his life. Truly the game of his life. I mean, I cannot wait to pick against them on whoever they play next week because it, then it's not going to look like that. Um, but they've showed that that defense all over the field can make pro- can really have problems for anybody. The defensive line is really good. The linebackers are athletic. The DBs are long and big and hard to deal with, whereas some people thought that was LSU, but in reality they were all soft, small, and overrated. Um, they just played well, and even when Spiller got hurt, the, they've got backs behind him. The, at the Devin Ashane kid's a 100-meter champion that was there with Malik Hornsby in high school, and they just played the perfect football game. And when you play the perfect football game at home, even if it's against Alabama, you can still win, especially in this league. And that's what happened. And I think there was a, a little Bill O'Brien bullshit thrown in there. Some of his red zone calls were terrible and that cost them touchdowns and they didn't go for it on times. I kind of thought they probably should have, and they kicked some weird field goals and, I don't know. I mean, AM didn't move the ball in the second half, so I get it. But it was just a crazy game. And I cannot, I cannot believe they won. I couldn't either. And I so it seemed like to me just a general view of like I like I mentioned, I wasn't like locked into it, but the entire second half, once the other game became like pretty much decided, I we were into like we were watching it, but it's also eight o'clock at night after I had experienced a game day for the first time in a while. So like your boy was not taking notes. I would put it that to you that way. The yeah. The it seemed like general sense that Alabama finished with 153 rushing yards. Brian Robinson had 147 of them, but that's on 24 carries, so they made him earn it. It seemed like, like you mentioned, they had the talent to slow down Alabama a bit in the running game and actually put the game in Bryce Young's hands. And you mentioned there was some, you know, there was some bullshit in there, like you had the kick return and uh, some of the play calling sure. wasn't bad, but. I, it didn't seem Young was kind of up to the moment to carry the team when the running game wasn't always there, if that makes sense. That was the general sense I got of that game. Yeah, he uh, he's this is his second game on the road in the SEC where he's looked uh, pretty mortal. Uh, like a freshman. He, yeah, like I guess he's technically a sophomore. He's still a phenomenal football player, and yes. he still made plays. He really never even looked like he was uh, – stressed out or you know uncomfortable he's got so much poise as a young player that you wouldn't know it if you didn't see it I think his play just kind of showed it but A&M defensively Elko they, they just brought so much pressure they were just saying we're not you're not going to sit back there and and throw the ball around because we probably can't guard your receivers for four or five seconds um and I'm sure Ole Miss fans saw that game plan were like holy shit maybe we should do this Sure, but uh, don't exactly have the cats that A&M does, uh, you know, on that defensive line and linebackers. So it's a little bit easier said than done. Uh, but that was their game plan. They, they put pressure on Young the whole game. They had some exotic blitzes. They, they did a, a ton of stuff, and it was working, and it worked consistently. And like I said, they played the perfect game in offense and defense, and when you do that, you can win. Just when we were down in Jimbo for kind of being outdated and not really adjusting, and I don't even know if he definitely did, but like he kind of wow. that to me was kind of a uh, we still got it type of thing. Like you know, yeah. a lot of times, like you mentioned, where it's like, oh, we thought OSU was talented, but actually they're kind of overrated and soft. You know, you can kind of be outdated and not be the greatest coach, but if you've done your like done your job in the off season recruiting, 
Like, I feel like that was kind of a recruiting win. Like, they had the horses to compete with Alabama. And, like, they were played a great schematic game. But even if you don't think what he's doing big picture-wise is always great, there's, you know, kind of a reminder that, actually, this guy still recruits at, like, a top-six level. And, like, he has com- he's competent. Like, he hasn't completely lost his way like one Edward Orgeron has. So, I, I, this is this going to end up being – I hate to be this guy, but is this going to be the end up being the most useless – Alabama upset of all time because if AM yes. had just not, you know, peed down their leg against Arkansas, you might actually have something here. And, you know, Ole Miss doesn't have the tiebreaker. And as much as I want this thing to be interesting, Alabama goes to state. They're home for four weeks in a row against LSU, Tennessee, New Mexico State, and Arkansas. And then they have the Iron Bowl. Like, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I, I, I don't like them to lose any of those games, particularly with all of them being at home. Uh, If you want to pin this on LSU, just being pathetic and rolling over again, I'm down to blame them because this would normally be an opportunity where like, Oh, maybe they go in there and kind of wreck their season. That's clearly not happening. You know, I guess the iron bowl weirder stuff's happened, but them getting Tennessee, LSU and Arkansas all at home in New Mexico state mixed in and, you know, credit to state for winning two weeks ago. I don't really give them much of a shot. I It sucks. I don't think they're losing again. Do you think this will be useless or do you think this will make them sweat a little bit? Uh, I think it'll be a Nick Saban motivating factor to say yes. just because you've got the helmet on doesn't mean you can come out here and just play like shit and not, you know, focus and think you're just going to win every single game because you've seen us do it last year. Uh, I saw a guy tweet. This is one of the, the weirder tweets you'll see. There are three teams right now in the SEC West that if they win out, they go to the SEC championship game. Those three teams are Alabama, so really nothing's changed for them, Auburn, and Mississippi State. <laughs> <laughs> Mississippi State's the third team. If they win every single game here on out, they will go to the SEC championship game. Uh, I think they're in for a big hurting uh, next week next week uh, a big a big time hurting and it, it, it'll probably be a very sick nasty Nick Saban revenge game but there's a lot of controversy in the west there's there is the ability for there to be controversy in the west I'm not sure there actually is because uh, I think Alabama will most likely do what they do and they'll win out and they'll go to the SC championship game where they will play a team that is actually better than them um, but it's going to be entertaining. We have that, and that's something we haven't had for a while, so that's cool. Yeah, you're dead on with that. Elsewhere, I don't know. I, I just hope it happens just for the controversy's sake. But, I mean, I still think, you know, when you view it from the prism, well, one, that made me think Georgia's most doubted, most undoubtedly the most complete team in the country. Like, they're probably the best team in the country. They're probably favored against Alabama when they probably do inevitably meet in the SEC title game. Yeah. Um, but even t- just seeing how two through seven plays out in the West is going to be fascinating because it goes back to what you said. No one sucks. So I'm, I'm curious to see that. Uh, now I'm just going to put this one on a tee for you and let you go whatever direction you want. 42-21. It really wasn't that close. Um, shout out to my guy Brody Miller wrote a great story last night. I think he titled it like the day, the, the night the dam broke for Ed Orgeron, I think was the way he titled it. But I thought one of the more compelling points he made in his piece, and it was very well written, it's on the athletic if you want to go read it, was the difference between some of these other ones was this was completely expected. This was a not an embarrassing defeat, you know, to an inferior team. 
in the sense that like, you can argue talent, but like this was a confirmation. This is what probably most of us thought was going to happen to some degree. I know the line was only three, but I didn't feel good about OSU's chances winning this game, not being able to run the ball. And this, look, we thought, look, if we're being real, it was over for Ed before this, but yes. last night they, they kind of quit on it. I mean, Brody opened the story about how, it was at some point in the third quarter and something bad had just happened or I don't even know if it was good or bad, but they all just kind of ran back to the sideline and just passed Ed. No one said a word to him. Like he looked kind of yeah. isolated from his own team. I thought that was really kind of a poignant example. Uh, take this wherever you want. This, this appears to be like it's going to get very bad before it gets better. Yeah. Well, as we're recording this, he's not been fired yet. Which is uh, shocking I, to me. I would have, I would have wagered that he was. Legitimately shocking. But I think that, will show that they've got a plan in place. I would imagine maybe it's a thing you do over the bye week or maybe they do it tomorrow. Who who knows? Um, That team completely quit in the first quarter of that football game. Uh, Kentucky saw another fun tweet last night, has not beaten an SEC opponent by 20 points since Vanderbilt in 1998. Whoa. So, yes. Not beaten an SEC team by 20 points since Vanderbilt in 1998. I don't even know if I believe that, but I'll, I'm going to believe it for the sake of this argument. I'm sure that's not true, but that, that was a real person that tweeted it, verified blue check mark. Um, I mean, they're calling, they're playing Colin Baton Rouge in the stands in the fourth quarter. I mean, it's just, it was over before this, but now it's officially over and you can just go to the conversation of what happens next. Um, I think it's going to be, hilarious to watch all the bullshit that's about to ensue from that administration. You're about to see some, some leaks to USA today about how Ogeron knew everything that's been going on. He's owed a $21 million buyout. So they're going to, they're going to snake their way out of that some way, shape or form. I don't know what it's going to be, whether Ogeron just gives up and just accepts it or they find some cause to get out of it. Uh, it's 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 bad. I mean, it's just it's the worst LSU football team since I've been alive, and I'm 25 years old. And there, I mean, there's been some bad ones, but not like this. I mean, they were just embarrassed. They were actually the worst team by a talent standpoint and by a coaching standpoint against Kentucky. They truly were outmatched from almost every single position group. They didn't play hard. They couldn't run the ball in Kentucky, which you know they're going to run the ball, just gashed them the entire game. They pushed him around. Ogeron in his press conference when they said that Kentucky ran for 330 yards was like, wow, you know, that's kind of – didn't really uh, think Kentucky was going to run the ball that well going into the game. And that is just hilarious because that's the only thing they do is run the ball. Yeah, they haven't watched Kentucky for the past 10 years under stoops uh it, it, i mean it's over it's just now we get to the the fun part for at least fans or you know miserable part for whoever it is but the coaching starts already has begun who knows who it's going to be I, I i know who i would want it to be and i who i as an lsu person like deep down want it to be um but i just don't know if woodward will swallow his pride and and go for it but uh, I think Napier should be the guy. I was about to ask that same thing. That's interesting. And so the, yes, it's over, but the, 
the aspect of it you're talking about, like there's about to be so many leaks to USA Today. The one thing I'll contend was I, I don't want to have this wrong. So I was trying to look it up on my phone. Um, I believe one Stephen Godfrey was in attendance for that game and went to cover that game. And I'll just put it this way. Godfrey doesn't write game stories. Um, Godfrey does some analysis. I don't think he's not like, good at it, but he's about as plugged in in terms of the coaching stuff and big picture type stuff as anyone in the national media. And I, I don't think it was an accident. He chose to spend his Saturday night in Lexington, Kentucky. It might not turn out to be anything, but that to me was a tell when I saw that he was in Lexington, I, that to me was a somewhat telling indication of what might pop in the next 24 to 36 hours. I don't know anything. I'm like you, I'm actually fairly stunned that nothing has happened yet because particularly when I, like I said, when I saw he was up there, I was like, Oh, dude, he's getting canned. Like <laughs> this guy did not go up there to see Kentucky's defensive line. I can promise you no. that. So yeah, like you mentioned, now is kind of the fun part. How does this circus play out? And the last thing I'll say on this was like, Brody put, pointed out this in his column. It's not that when you win a national championship, you have a down year, two years later coming off a, of, you know, once in a hundred year pandemic, that can be explained away, but LSU's fading into irrelevance with a bunch of off the field baggage and it looks terrible. And, you know, I've thought about that a decent bit on the plane ride home today where I was like, well, what does irrelevance actually mean? And when you look at and watch this football team, it's where, where is it getting better in the short term? Like this is not going to be turned around into a 10 and two deal next year or the classic Ed Orgeron interim thing. They're not firing Ed and well, I don't mean in that sense, they're not firing Ed and the replacement comes in and goes four and one down the stretch or five and one down the stretch. Like it's, no. it's bad and they're irrelevant. And look, I know things can change and a couple of recruiting classes can change everything, but you would know better than I do. Does this not feel like a three, four year fix almost? Maybe that's probably a little strong, but this feels yeah, like it's not being strong. turned around overnight. No, I, it's, it's, it's on. You're lucky that you're LSU. Yes. Because of how easy it is to recruit there. Honestly, just how easy the job is. You are set up for success like no other program in the country except for maybe Ohio State, where you have a legitimate in-state talent and you can recruit nationally and everyone wants to be the coach there. Last three guys at LSU have won national titles for a reason. Two of them are about to be – there's about to be two of them fired. That's that's yeah. no accident. No, it's no accident. So it's it won't be that crazy of a turnaround – but they have to start evaluating better. If you look back at their 2018 and 2019 classes and go through the guys that were in those classes, they were going like 18 for 25, like missing on 18 guys. Seven guys were like productive players. It, it's, it's embarrassing. And there's recruiting circle rumors that, you know, the LSU is a team where they don't really evaluate. They just pull up 24 seven and start, start firing off offers and, I never really believed that, but the people that were telling me it, I trust. I, I now completely believe it when you go back and look at some of the guys that they've, you know, kind of recruited and circled in on, especially in-state and out-of-state. That has to be adjusted and looked at more than anything. And that's why Napier makes so much sense because he is as good of it at ULL as anybody in the country. Um who else are you going to get in this? And I get things are going to go differently, but you mentioned that you're not sure Woodward or Swallow is pride. Who is a currently more attractive candidate? Like if you're unsure about that, and I know you seem pretty clear, that would be the guy you would prefer if you were kind of in those shoes. But who 
who in this coaching carousel, and again, I know it's October, who was the attractive candidate that would be like, no, I'd actually like to go after him first. I'm not saying he doesn't exist, but I'm just wondering who that is. Um, oh, what the heck? My, that's a, sorry, I had to pause there. I was looking at my phone. Uh, that is, I guess, kind of the million dollar question because I don't think there's going to be that many guys available that you could see is a, a quote unquote home run hire, which is what Scott Woodward's going to look for. Um, I it's, it's a weird one. I think some people say James Franklin, but honestly, I feel like Franklin gets out coached in every single big game he's ever played in. I, I don't see him as some fix at all. I know he's got SEC experience and he's good. Um, I think some of the names you're going to see thrown out are just total nonsense. Like I saw Rohan Davies, like I want Eric Bieniemy, or I want Joe Brady. Like you guys are insane. If you think that a sitting offensive coordinator in the NFL is going to pass up an NFL head coaching job, become coach LSU. That's insane. The, they get paid better in the NFL. And they don't have to recruit. Um, that I, I just Kiffin. Kiffin's one that it's going to be brought up. It, it makes sense from a, what they want the team to look like standpoint. I said on the last podcast, I don't totally know if I think the fit with him and LSU and Woodward makes a lot of sense. Um, but that's one that I could see the fan base understanding. Um, Dave Aranda, to me, seems like – that's not someone I would look at. Uh, he's done really well at Baylor so far, and I think he would probably crawl back to Baton Rouge. He's actually one of the few people that's left that place and had positive things to say about it in the past few years. Good point. I mean, that's true. No one else has. Um, there's just so there's just not that many guys out there. I mean, Matt Campbell's lost a lot of his uh, spark. Uh, it sounds like Fickle really wants the Michigan job. And that fit makes no sense to me at all. Um, SEC fit isn't the only thing, but it's incredibly important. You've seen it with Moorhead and Mississippi State, what happened there, kind of what, what Leach is going on right now, even though they've been playing a little bit better. I really don't know. I mean, I could sit here and think about it, and the only one to me that I'm like, yeah, just go ahead and write the check is Napier. But I, just, I don't think that that's what they're going to do because – that's just not enough of a home run for that team and that program, at least where they think there should be at. Um, I don't know. I do not know. The job is top five. I just don't know if the pool of coaches that want to go there is top five. Fair enough. I can't wait to see how this plays out because it's going to be fascinating. Anything yeah. else shocking from the SEC or just college football as a whole this weekend? Um, you know, hand up on me. The one game in terms of like my social plans after the old Miss game, and the way that timing worked out, I didn't watch a lot of Georgia Auburn, but my God, you look at the stat sheet, and I didn't take a genius to fill in the way this did. Seemed like you know, what Georgia Auburn was five of eighteen on third down. Seemed like they couldn't. They ran the ball terribly, which that kind of neuters Auburn. Bo Nix seemed okay, but just kind of you take away Auburn's running game, which Georgia could have done kind of in their sleep with this defense, and Bo Nix is not anywhere close enough to good enough to make that a competitive game. That seemed very predictable. I don't know. Do you have any? overwhelming thoughts on how that went that seemed pretty much on online um no i actually that's the one game i didn't see a lot of um 
I think people are crazy to think that Kirby's not going to go straight to JT Daniels once he's healthy. Uh, Stetson Bennett has been playing well, but that team is going as far. They're not, I mean, it's the defensive team, but you've got to have JT in there if you want to do everything that they have goal wise. And that's why, that's why I don't totally trust them because Kirby may just say, screw it. I'm just going to win it with this, with the mailman. Um, but who, who knows? Uh, Auburn came back down to reality. Bo Nix still just isn't that good. Um, they had some plays early to, like, kind of make that a game, and they just couldn't make those plays, and it got out of hand quickly. So uh, I'm not surprised with that. I don't think Auburn was set up for a whole lot of success there, even though I thought they might have fucking covered, but nope. Um, what else happened? Tennessee beat the dog shit out of a bad South Carolina team. That's probably That's, a great way to close, like, the SEC yeah. talk is, like, before we get to the fastest growing segment in sports, but the like they, they're kind of figured something out. Like you mentioned, I was kind of in your camp because one, you kind of pointed that out. And I was like, yeah, that Milton kid wasn't bad, but clearly they kind of found something with Hinden Hooker. But I think this is more of a schematic thing. Like you mentioned, you're kind of a big hypeful guy. And that's kind of I why I went with Tennessee in the picks two weeks ago against Missouri. Cause I was like, I don't know if either of these teams are any good, but um, I'll take the better head coach and the better scheme. And it was the same way this week. I was like, I don't feel great about Tennessee being 10 and a half point favorites, but I think that Hypo is just going to absolutely abuse South Carolina's like from a schematic standpoint. And I mean, you saw that from the opening jump, wasn't this thing 28, nothing at the end of the first quarter, this was really just a coaching mismatch. And I don't even think Shane Beamer is terrible, but like that, they, they're impressive. And I think Ole Miss is going to find their way into another shootout. I mean, hell, I saw Vegas, someone texted me or today, um there was like here like i saw the early over under was 85 and a half for this no it's like my god i haven't verified um, that please don't quote me on that but someone who's like serious like not was not screwing around was like they just opened this at 85 and i was like no way i'd have to look at that that doesn't surprise me um I guess we'll start with Tennessee's last game. Uh, they haven't really beaten anybody with a pulse yet. They, they've lost to Pittsburgh, and they lose someone else. Is Pittsburgh – who else have they lost to? Auburn – no, not Auburn, excuse me. I don't no. know why I said that. Florida, and they lost to – no, they're only two losses. Those are the only two losses. But their Florida wins are Bowling Green, Missouri, South Carolina, and I think that's T- UT Chattanooga. Yeah. Um, that, that must be it. Um, so they haven't beaten anybody with a pulse, but they've kind of hit their stride semi-similar to what Ole Miss looked like last year when the offense clicked, where it was just, you know, we're going to score at will. And if you're a bad team, we're going to prove it to you, kind of like against South Carolina and against Kentucky, um, where it was just like once they figured it out, that was it. Tennessee's hit that. I've, I've said it so many times on here. I, I believe that Heupel is going to do a really good job there. And once they get better players, it's going to show that their scheme. I mean, Jeff Levy worked under Heupel. Uh, some of the analysts that are at Ole Miss were at Missouri when Heupel was the OC there. The guy knows football. And they run – they're even more up-tempo uh, and faster than Ole Miss is. Just – I'm not ready to say that they're going to win that football game. But it's it's going to be a tough one for Ole Miss. That uh, they are going to be a pain to stop, and I, we mentioned it before. But I think Ole Miss is going to have to stick in that three two six for the whole game, and just kind of accept what's what it is. Um, the DBs have to play really well because they're going to stress you on the outside like crazy. Um, I, I don't think they're that great. 
I think they've beaten the shit out of teams that are bad. Um, and they have not been anyone that's good, but they're hitting their stride and it's going to be a, it's going to be a tough atmosphere. It's a night game there. And, uh, in Neyland. It's a big week for them because after Ole Miss, I think there's a bye week sprinkled in. Yeah, there definitely is after Alabama, but they go Ole Miss to at Alabama bye week at Kentucky and then home against Georgia. So like, I mean, look, let's just call a spade a spade here. If they lose to Ole Miss, they're probably losing four in a row. If they, if you told me they went and lit up the scoreboard on Kentucky and won that game, I wouldn't be stunned, I guess, but they're clearly not beating the other two, but you know, this was an important game for Heupel from the South Carolina standpoint, uh, or against South Carolina, I should say, because I think he just got them bowl eligible. Their last two games of the year are South Alabama and Vanderbilt, and they're four and two. And like that, to me, first year head coach, when you don't kind of have the talent, getting that postseason game matters. So good for them. Okay. We'll have some more time to discuss it, but I think you're right. I think this is going to be a tough one for Ole Miss. I think it'll be another good like kind of litmus test for the defense like if the defense plays well enough and gets a couple stops a half I think Ole Miss probably wins this game but if they you know become completely incompetent then I think Ole Miss could be in trouble on Saturday night so be fascinating to watch nothing else stood out I didn't I saw a little bit of Alabama or excuse me Penn State Iowa um I seem like classic getting out coached in a big game like you mentioned Iowa is not spectacular at all Kentucky and Iowa are kind of one in the same in that aspect but they just win yeah. games um, yeah, one of the you know Iowa, someone in that kind of mix, Iowa, Cincinnati, whomever is probably going to earn the right to get the hell beat out of them by Georgia. But good for them for earning the right to do it. That seemed I don't know. Did you watch much of that game? No, but I did. I didn't watch much of it. Uh, I know the Penn State quarterback got hurt, so that definitely changes some things because Penn State was kind of controlling that game a little bit, but still down the stretch, Franklin just he's like Kirby. He'll find a way to to screw it up. Um, I think it's worth mentioning what happened with Texas and Oklahoma because uh, Rattler lost his job, and I tweeted out that I'm honestly surprised it took this long because I knew what Caleb Williams was just from recruiting. I mean, I knew how talented that kid was, and in that system, he was going to be a stud. Um, Is Rattler redeemable? I think that's a good point, though. Like, if Rattler transfers to, say – I mean, this I'm not not suggesting this would be a good fit. I know where we're going, yeah. Yeah, like two Ole Miss, like could someone like her Tennessee, someone who clearly is one of the, you know, like these guys know offense. They're good offensive minds. They can kind of turn average into great. And uh, I think with Corral, good talent into a complete quarterback. Do you think he's redeemable? I think he has redeemable traits. Um, I think he has a shit mindset. I mean, he was he, – I know he was young and it's high school and it's really tough to judge kids at that age when you're on TV and that kind of pub and that kind of publicity, but his showing on the QB one show was uh, not spectacular to say the least. I mean, he got kicked out of the school, I think uh, shit talking his teammates a bunch. And honestly, so he was like the Tate Martell light. So tell me, let me search so some insight on that. Cause I have not seen this show because I know Tate Martell kind of became Tate Martell because of that show. But yeah, I've been there a dynamic where no one wants to crush him in the media because they like him. I don't understand. What's his deal? Like, what's 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 going on with Spencer Rattler personality wise? Well, I think no one wants to crush him in the media because he's still a kid in college. And it's like, are we really going to do this to this kid right now? Like he hasn't had any like, you know, crazy off the field issues at Oklahoma, but he did in high school. And still nobody knows what happened. It's, it's a really weird deal. Um, he, he just seems wildly unlikable 
to me. <laughs> okay. You know, I'm not really sure. No, that's not a good thing with, when you're a quarterback, though. You can be no. unlikable as a defensive tackle and be fine. Uh, pretty important, I would say, from a team aspect. Yes, you're correct. Um, I just – I don't know. If I'm Ole Miss, like, do you take the gamble if that happens? Because, I mean, I don't think he's going to be at Oklahoma next year. Uh just with the way that's going. Caleb Williams is going to have that job for three years. And like I said, should have happened earlier in the season because, I mean, that kid is so ridiculously good. Um, I personally would want him nowhere near this team. I don't care how good he is. I honestly think he's been overrated from the second he got there. Um, Not really even from a talent standpoint, from just a leadership and – he doesn't take care of the ball. He, he's kind of inaccurate. He's bad scrambling. He just – he kind of has that Shea Patterson shit to him. Like, yes. you see the one or two plays, and you're like, oh, there it is. And then, like, the rest of the game, you look back, and you're like, damn, that none of that was really that impressive. And I, I don't think they need to go down that route. Will they? And just say, fuck it, we'll fix him? Maybe, but I, I, I wouldn't. Fair enough. Um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'll be interested to see how that one plays out as well from how that works. I don't think they're starting it again. I think you're right about that. That about wraps it up for some college football. We've gone long, but we knew this would be a long one because my God, what a marathon of a game. But it's time for the real podcast segment. What really everyone came to listen to this for It is the fastest growing segment on American soil. Soccer corners back in a big way. The reason I was telling you before we started recording, the reason I knew this was kind of taking off a bit. Uh, one, I could gauge the temperature of the message board, but some Saudi prince decided to pocket up and buy some English Premier League team, and I immediately got like four or five text messages from people being like, you seen this? And I was like, I have now. So yeah. Newcastle United has been bought by some Saudi Arabian who is worth $320 billion. As much as we joke about me being a dumb American and not knowing enough about soccer, you're actually into soccer and a soccer fan. I did. I do find this aspect of it interesting, and I did know enough about this to where if you're a soccer team, there's no salary cap and all that stuff. So if you have a rich owner who's just willing to spend – look, everyone spends money in professional sports, but just absurd amount of money on players, you're immediately going to become relevant, right? Like you might not necessarily win the English Premier League or whatever, but you're going to be good. Newcastle United, he, get, he buys them. I, I took me five minutes to say the club – Look, yeah. I'm going to stick with the Brentford Beast for now, but I've seen a soccer movie on Newcastle, and I just think their jerseys slap. So I'm yeah. leaving the, the, the possibility open to switching to Newcastle just so I can get one of those sick black and white striped vertical striped jerseys. But uh, thoughts on this? Explain this to me like I'm four. Why does this matter? It is really wild. Uh, you've seen this happen, so – PSG, who is easily the most expensive team in the world right now. I actually think City is – they're, like, tied. This they're happened both, to City, right, not too long ago? Yes. It, within recent history, City was bought by a guy named Shaq Monsieur, who is the head of the kind of royal family of Qatar, I believe. Some one of those – no, I think United – United Gali, United – Arab Emirates. So he's probably got a pretty solid portfolio. Yeah, he's like a $10 billion, $12 billion, but I think he's got the funds of that entire country. And they basically bought the team and they built the new stadium. They 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 bought players and 
UEFA tried to implement this financial fair play thing, which I do not know enough about to comment on it, but it's supposed to avoid the worst of the worst of this kind of situation. Okay. But it has not done shit. It seems like this is even worse because I saw this guy's worth $320 billion. That seems like a lot versus $10 billion. Yes, it, it is astronomically more. I think the Premier League had to, like, give out a statement to where, like, they had to make sure that this team was not owned by, like, the Saudi Arabian government. <laughs> this, this power broker. I love group, this. This power broker group out of Saudi Arabia that has control of, like, $30, $320 billion. Um, but I listened to this guy earlier about it because, honestly, I just wanted to know more about it from a what does this do for the entire sport outlook because this is clearly the richest owner in any sport franchise in the world. This is Jeff Bezos and, buying a soccer team, essentially. And that's what I mentioned. That's like, rarefied air. What would it look like if Jeff, if Jeff Bezos bought the Seattle Mariners or something and just said, we're just going to pay for everybody. And our bankroll <laughs> is going to be ridiculous. We're going to be the Yankees times three. And it's a fascinating outlook from that point. But the soccer guy who works for like Sky Sports or whatever was saying that this is – the worst thing to happen for the teams who kind of compete but don't really win a lot because now the average player is going to be so much more expensive for any team because there's a team like Newcastle who can just overpay for, you know, above average players, whereas a team like Brentford, they'll never be able to afford the guy or – offer the same kind of contract so it'll be like a trickle down effect of every player is going to be more expensive so now now there's going to be only 10 to 12 teams in the world that can pay for some of these guys and everyone else is going to be left in the dust because they don't have the financial support that the top five or six clubs have I mean even a team like Manchester United the Glazers are worth like three billion the guy that just bought Newcastle is worth 300 billion that's a different page and the Glazers own multiple teams in multiple sports. So, like, this is not even necessarily their most important investment. <laughs> the Buccaneers might be. Um, and it's just – it's it's a wild deal. From Economically, I think it's fascinating. Um, what the team's going to look like will be interesting. I mean, who the hell wants to go to Newcastle? It's the furthest north team in the Premier League. It's not a glamorous destination for a player like – Kylian Mbappe in Paris, for instance, who's about to be sold. I don't know what's going to happen with it, but it's a wild story. And it's interesting from so much more than just a billionaire buying a soccer team, in my opinion. Yeah, it's soccer's. I, as much as I love to poke fun at it, like it is fascinating from this standpoint. I don't understand, like, I guess I do understand it, where as much as they want to sack managers, when you're just irrelevant, why would you not just bully the guy? I guess it's hard to bully billionaires into selling the team into a more richer guy. But, like, I, if you're in Newcastle, like, are they celebrating like they've won a championship just over this? Because this seems like yes. this is going to change fortunes overnight. The other aspect of it is because I am a soccer savant, they are 19th out of 20th in the Premier League, which last time I checked, which is my favorite term in sports, means relegation. So, is there an added subplot here to make sure they don't drop out of the Premier League right after these dudes take them over? Because this seems like, you know, if they're going to do their rich guy ascent to the top, this will start next season. Is that correct? Yeah, probably next season. They'll probably just fire the manager they have now and go pay, you know, one of these guys that's been on the sidelines like Antonio Conte or, you know, some Steven Gerrard or one of these 
you know, guys that have been around for a while to come take over. Uh, not a great ROI on your uh, on your purchase if they end up getting relegated this season. I don't think they are. They actually are pretty talented. They have some fun players and are a fun team to watch. Um, but, yeah, they could easily just fire the next manager. I mean, you can look at the videos of their fans. They were celebrating like they won the Super Bowl. The, the, the owner they had previously spent, like, the least amount of money in the Premier League over the last 10 years, and now they have the richest owner in the history of sports. <laughs> and so they're fucking over the roof about what just happened. So we've got that going on. Was there – we're on a break, so there's no other Premier League to discuss, right? We're there's have to jump into qualifiers. Right, so this is qualifying. What, uh, what's happening? Why – is it a bad sign that the MLS has not stopped play for World Cup qualifying? Is that that doesn't seem great in terms of relevance of the league, or does that matter? Um, yeah, I don't really know to be honest. They haven't stopped playing. Uh, they do send they send people all over the place. I mean, the U.S. has some guys. I think it's just they'll just bring some of the young guys up and they'll just start playing. Or some of the guys are older, so they don't even make the Cup squad. So yeah, it's not a great product uh, okay. or a great picture of that product. Uh, but to qualifying us played their first game today, Sunday, I guess it was, um, either Thursday or Friday, Thursday night, they played, uh, in Austin, they beat Jamaica two zero Ricardo Pepe scored twice. 18 year old chose the U S over Mexico, three goals in two straight qualifying games. He looks like a monster. However, as we were recording this on one of my TVs, I had the game against Panama, and they just lost at Panama 1-0, which is not a great result. Um, it's tough to win on the road in, in this octagonal qualifying deal they have, but they looked like complete shit. So they are now tied in second place in the table. They're in a good position right now, but uh, not a great result this afternoon. Who's so so winning that first game? How important is that? Are they are, are we are we going to the World Cup? We are on the road to the World Cup. We we are in second. I think the top three qualify. Fourth goes to a playoff. There's eight teams that are in this whole deal. This is only the second round of games, so there's there's plenty left. You know, plenty of games left to either screw it up or count it. I would say we're going to the World Cup as of right now. Uh, we've been playing well. We have guys injured all over the place, and we're still pulling out results. Um, I think we're going to be just fine. Tuesday or Wednesday, we play at home against Costa Rica. If we win that game, I think we will be just fine. Why? So I'm just curious because I know Mexico is going to get in. I'm looking at the group. So it's Panama, Canada, CRC. Who is that? What are they? Who is that? Costa oh, that's Costa Rica. Oh, that was stupid. Uh, what is the Slovene? No, Salvador that has to be Honduras and Jamaica. Yeah. Is it not a pretty big indictment if we can't just finish right behind Mexico? Who's our biggest threats? Is it, I guess, someone out of that group, Canada, Panama, who it's seems Canada. confident because they beat us? Like, that seems to be kind of four teams for three spots. Like, who else is a threat? Yeah, Canada is, is actually really talented. They've got maybe he's my, one of my favorite players to watch. He plays uh, left back. He's kind of like a winger for them. His name's Alfonso Davies, uh, which is, a, first of all, just a phenomenal soccer name, just a phenomenal sports name. He plays for Bayern Munich, which is probably the best team in the world. Uh, he's Canadian. He is legitimate. Like, he would be pushing Tyreek Hill in a 100-meter dash. 
Whoa, this, kid, whoa. this guy's legit speed. He is absolutely crazy fast. Um, they, they've got some really good players. They're incredibly well coached. They're probably our biggest roadblock into easily qualifying. Uh, Jamaica looks like crap this year, and they're usually pretty talented. Uh, Panama, they just beat us. They're going to be kind of tough. It, but it was really Mexico, Canada, and us kind of working for that top three, in my opinion. And I think we will, should be just fine. So how big is that, or is that just disaster averted? What, Qualifying. What do you mean? Oh. Uh, like, maybe. is that like an accomplishment, or is that just like, okay, thank God we didn't do this in a row? Because I just feel like – Qualifying the for the United, World Cup? Yeah, the United States missing two World Cups in a row seems – very suboptimal. No excuses. If you don't qualify, it's a disaster. That, that I mean, that's there's no way around it. No ifs, ands, or buts. Like the U.S. should never not qualify. Especially, Concacaf is a stupid league organization. Just the way things work, it's out of control. It's crazy. They don't even have VAR, which is like the video assistant. It's like not having replay, just because all the other countries are so shitty that they can't uh, implement it in some of their stadiums. Oh, that is it's a shit good. show. But they're just not even close to as talented as the U.S. is supposed to be and is. So, no, it would be a disaster if you don't qualify. There's, like, no excuses. Do we have a home stadium? It seems like we rotate around. Do we just play everywhere? Play all over the place. No official home stadium. Uh, Is that unique? That's kind of unique, yeah. I think it's just the, you know, Mexico, they kind of play all over the place, but almost always, especially World Cup qualifiers, play in – Azteca. Uh, Azteca. Yeah. Uh, that's the famous stadium there. It looks awesome. I'd love to play. I'd love to go to a game there, even though Mexico seems like a pretty dangerous place. Yeah, uh, I know. If you get the right protection, it'd be nice. Like I remember I read a lot about that because they played, they tried to play the football game there. I think they played one of them there, but like they were where it's very high up and the air quality stinks because that seems like an issue. And then the uh the uh the soil we'll call it is not always top notch in terms of the grass and stuff. Correct. So, yeah, definitely. They played that crazy – I think like the Raiders and Texans played there, and then they tried to have the Chiefs there or something. Chiefs-Rams that year had to be moved to uh, back into the United States because of uh, uh, basically just crappy grass, right? Like that stadium was terrible. It was like they can't play It was something super weird like that, yeah. Um, U.S.-wise, whenever they play anybody but Mexico – They'll play wherever. Like, they play Jamaica and Austin, uh, and they'll go to Boston. They'll go wherever. But when they play Mexico, they can't play in the West, and they can't play in Texas. They have to play – they usually end up playing in, like, Columbus, Ohio, or Cincinnati, (laughs) or Boston. Because if they go play in L.A. against Mexico, it's an away game. Yeah, right. You play in Boston against Mexico, home game. Yeah, That's like let's just put this in like Portland, Maine. Let's get the U.S. team up in Maine, or what's the like Omaha? Can we get them in just the middle of Middle America? Nope. That's Omaha. Cool. That's a road game. Yeah, <laughs> it's either Ohio or Boston or something like that. Everywhere else is going to be a road game. So, all right, so we still got some time left. How many more games until we figure out that whether these dudes have qualified or not? Like, what's what? Give me the timeline before we get out of here. I actually don't know. I think they have. That hasn't stopped us from opining on soccer before. Yeah. So, are we talking like next year or are we going to know the next few months? I think you'll know. I think they have another round of games in January. I think you'll probably know if they do what they're supposed to do, they'll probably qualify in the January rounds. 
but they might have to play a few other ones. I'm just kind of looking. November. I, I think they have another group of rounds in November and then another one in January. Yeah, another one in November, another one in January, and then maybe one more, and then that's it. But if they continue to win some of these games, I think they'll be qualified by January. This was the fastest-growing segment on American soil, Soccer Corner. I was a little bit lethargic about Soccer Corner because my Brentford Bees had not played, and I didn't know that till this morning until I looked up, and I was like, oh, hell, Weldon told me this last time they stopped playing for World Cup qualifying. So I got pretty disappointed, but honestly – I can get behind it. I can get invested in the U.S. trying to get in the World Cup. We'll be back next week with probably some EPL games, or we 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 still got a while. So you said two weeks. It's been at least yeah. one since this started. So one more week of national stuff, then we'll get back to uh, the Saudis buying teams and such. No, this this Saturday the EPL is back. Okay, the, awesome. The there we go. Well, that has been Soccer Corner, dude. I appreciate the time. As always, another marathon of a Sunday show. <laughs> But uh, I appreciate it as uh, as always, and we will uh, we'll catch up uh, Sunday if not maybe a little preview action because I know you're a big hype guy. I might get uh, some Thursday night uh, thoughts out of you as well. But we will uh, we'll chat again soon. All right, yeah, I knew this one was going to be a long one. That's okay. That's <laughs> it's what it is. All right, everybody have a safe and happy start to their week, and uh, we will talk to you again soon. All right, that's our show. Appreciate Weldon's time as always. Thanks for uh, joining or staying, sticking with us through the end. If you've made it this far, our Sunday marathon. I knew this would be a long podcast. How that was four football games in one. My God, and uh, we had a lot to discuss. And uh, I've enjoyed talking to Weldon on Sunday nights. This has been an awesome, awesome thing. He's just carrying the podcast on his back, and I appreciate his insight as always. So we'll be back on Wednesday. I'll have a, a couple guests lined up. Got a couple ideas in the works that I think you will enjoy. So stay tuned for the Wednesday and Friday podcasts and have a great start to your week.